Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Thanks for joining me for this very special episode of Entree Architect Podcast. For the past few years, our friends at Arcat invited me and several of my architect podcasting friends to collaborate at an event under their big red A live from the AIA conference expo floor. This year, I'm joined by my fellow podcasters, Demetrius Lynch from Spaces Podcast, Jeff Eccles from Context and Clarity, and Lance Psycho and Alex Gore from Inside the Firm. We invited several guests to join us for this continuous conversation about architecture, the profession, and wherever this serendipitous conversation took us. I hope you enjoy it live from Chicago at the AIA Convention Expo floor. Here is Arcast 22. Live at AIA Conference Chicago 2022. This is Arcast. This is our fourth Arcast. Right, we're at the Arcast Arcat booth in Chicago under the Big Red A. Can't miss it. Yeah, can't miss it. Just look for the Big Red A. Come hang out with us if you're here in Chicago. Free high fives, free fist bumps. Yeah. Hey, I even got Entree Architect stickers that I pulled out of the closet. Yay! We've got to unwrap those. All if you right. come by, you can have a have an Entree Architect sticker. You get an Entree Architect sticker. You get an Entree Architect sticker. We are uh, doing interviews today. Our first guest is supposed to arrive shortly. But uh, why don't we just 
go down a list here and introduce ourselves and uh, let people who may not know who we are, who we are. Demetrius, you want to start? Yeah, I'll jump in there. Uh, so my name is Demetrius Lynch, for those that don't know me. Uh, host of Spaces Podcast, Chief Creative Officer at Gable Media, uh, working with Mark there. And uh, excited to be here, excited to get this one underway, uh, our fourth show. Uh, this, I think this is my second, maybe. Yeah, you were a, and, guest. Uh, you were a guest at one. Yeah, yeah, I was a guest the first one, and then actually uh, co-hosted the second one. So excited to get back in here and uh, see what we come up with today. All right. And uh, I am Mark Arlepage, founder of Entree Architect, uh, CEO of um, Gable Media, and uh, friends of all these guys that are here and uh, working hard to try to help small firms build better businesses at Entree Architect. Um, Mr. Eccles, who are you and what do you do? That's a really good question. <laughs> My name is Jeff Eccles. I host the Build Your Brand podcast, but also Context and Clarity, the daily conversation in Context and Clarity Live. And our mission there is to Talk about the things that matter most to the success of small firm architects. I am Lance Psycho, one of the co-hosts of Inside the Firm podcast, co-founder of F9 Productions, F14 Productions, and I've got Al. Yeah, Al Gore, vice president, invented the internet, super awesome (laughs) dude. Uh, I can't believe someone wrote me in here to talk to you guys, but somehow, no, I'm just kidding. I'm Alex Gore. Everything Lance said, uh, business partner, so so same thing there. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing that we can get a former vice president to come co-host our cast with us. Exactly. That's exactly. the clout we've got. Yeah. yeah. We have major pull here. I just major thought of pull. some idea because people are walking by looking at what we're doing. Next time, we should have live on Facebook where they can go to. Yes. Um, yes. So you could go to the Entree Architect community if you're an architect. So all the architects that are here in Chicago can go to the Entree Architect community. If you're not a member, you can go to entrearchitect.com slash group, and you can request membership, and one of our moderators will probably get us in there, get you in there. And uh, you can watch us live in the Entree Architect community Facebook group. And so the, the idea of our cast uh, is to get together, with collaborate with some friends, some podcasting friends, have a, a marathon conversation and uh, basically start the conversation with us, invite a guest to come in, continue that conversation. We have guests scheduled for half hours, but coming in every 15 minutes. So we have overlapping guests having one big long conversation for three hours. Beautiful. Yeah. So, Mark, can I put you on the spot? Yes. Sure. I like that. So, um, you know, Elon Musk put his master plans you know every like five years he'll write his master plan of what tesla's gonna do or whatever company what is mark lepage's master plan for podcasting <laughs> world domination and all that well i got i got on either side of me that are gonna help us do that demetrius and i are taking over the world of podcasting starting with architects and then we're gonna slowly integrate into the rest of the world and take over the world in podcasting. It'll take us a few years to to build our empire around architects. Um, And Entree Architect is going to continue to grow to help architects build better businesses in lots of different ways. 
And uh, Jeff and I actually should we should do a little announcement? Yeah, I think we should. Right. Yeah, this morning Jeff and I shook hands, and Jeff is an official partner now at Gable Technologies, which is the company that owns Entree Architect. Congratulations! Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, long time coming. What's the official title? <laughs> That's up to him. Oh, okay. Yeah, make. I made a suggestion, but I don't know if he's claimed it yet. Chief Tech of what? Techno King. <laughs> you, you had a suggestion this morning. It was a uh, director of um, community growth. Community growth. Community growth. It's. Right. I mean, the, the future. The future has to be about continuing to grow the community that is Entree Architect and small firm architects. Um, but you know, we, we we look at the amazing community that we already have, and on Facebook. If, if you're watching live on Facebook right now, you're in a Facebook group where there's a community of 8,000 architects from around the world. Is it up to eight? It's it's pretty it's close. Seven, huh? yeah. I mean, it's almost there. It's, I'm yeah. rounding up probably Gosh, a little I think, bit. I think when Alex and I joined, it was like half of that. Well, you know, you're going to get a crocheted award for being one of the, the founding <laughs> members for being in that early. But, you know, we have the opportunity to help and support and, and grow a community uh, out of out of that group and, and it's got to start with engaging more of those people yeah. you know Facebook tells us we have something like 5500 active members on a daily basis in that group how do we grow that and how do we create more engagement I have a question and actually Jeff I think context and clarity is such an on-point marketing phrase and, and, yeah, and yeah. identity yeah, it's, kind of, it's on the nose well <laughs> In a good way. Yeah. Where did you get it from? How did you come up with that? That's a great Who'd question. Who did you steal it from? What were you drinking? What were you wearing? <laughs> yeah. That's a great question. So, so the whole history of it is that, of course, everything, the middle of March of 2020 was shutting down. And Mark and I have talked probably on a weekly basis for years. So, and this is actually in the presentation that I did Wednesday here. April 3rd of 2020, Mark and I met and kind of we're talking about the state of small firm architects and you know what's going to happen and and how can we support small firm architects with everything shutting down you know if you're not not to pick on anybody but if if you're Gensler or your SOM or Perkins Will or whoever you've got resources you've got connections you've got technology small firm architects didn't have that advantage with everything shutting down so how can we best support small firm architects give them what they need give them what they want and we realized at that point that it may be help them overcome the feeling of loneliness because all of a sudden they're not interacting with anybody they don't have any employees some depending on the size and such but but it may be just giving them a place to go and that's really what context and clarity became and so we launched it April 6th of 2020. It was the first conversation. Now we're 565 conversations in. Um, and I don't, honestly, I don't know. I think we just kind of evolved into that name. I mean, the, the context was a new context, a, a new, you know, COVID-driven, pandemic-driven context. And the, the tagline has always been, um, find clarity around the things that matter most. You know, so, oh, you know, how do we do this? How do we do that? I've heard this. How do we clarify one one topic every day? How do we find clarity around this? And maybe it's invoicing today. Maybe it's Julie Taylor standing over there. Maybe it's maybe it's PR for small firm architects. 
um, you know, how do we find clarity around this this one thing on any given day? We can bring Julie in. Okay. Julie Taylor, come on down. You're the next contestant on our cast. All right. Hi, Julie. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Who are you and what do you do? Wouldn't be anywhere else. Julie Taylor. I'm the founder of Taylor & Company, and we are a public relations and marketing services firms expressly for the architecture industries. I like to say we represent anything in, of, or around a built structure. All right. I've got to. I've got to say this because no one else is going to. When it comes to branding and brand artifacts, Julie, when Julie, when you were on Context and Clarity Live, you had a, a dress or a top or something on that was your brand color. And today, your glasses are absolutely the Taylor and Company. Do, Purple. Have Have you Have you trademarked that yet? I ha- I have not, but. Good idea. You should. I, I, it's, you a, should. it's a good thing. <laughs> it's That's a, trademarked. It is. I love it. The purple. I'm going to call it purple. Yeah. Purple glasses. The purple Taylor and Company glasses. It's awesome. I've been interviewing quite a bit of uh, marketing folks on our podcast, so I have some questions that are fresh to my top of my head. If I could ask you. Absolutely. That'd be great. Uh, so, what? What do you? What is? What is one free? marketing thing that's that a small firm architect could do today that they should be doing what well, something well, something that's just everybody should be doing it it's free to, it's free to do it's easy to do if you're not doing that you're doing yourself a disfavor number one a sign on your job sites it's incredible how many are not there you know if you look at it the um, the contractors aren't shy about it the fence company takes care of itself, um, and so the architects, it's the easiest, easiest thing. Yeah, I like that. What is one mistake that uh, you see, what is the most common mistake you see people make, small firm architects make, marketing? Not having a sign on their <laughs> job site. <laughs> There's a theme. We, we don't even do that all the time. We, I know, we used to. Yeah. So yeah. thanks for calling us out <laughs> on that one. I, I would say really talking to each other as opposed to their potential clients, you know, and in their communications. Um, when I uh, would lecture for students, you know, I said, hey, if you want to, you know, if you want to work for a developer, try not to answer your phone studio. Um, because that's not exactly what they want to hear. You know, they want to know that you're in a business. Um, my dad always said, if you're going to be in the business, be in the business. So take take care of things like marketing, like your staff, business plans, getting paid, not losing money on a job just because it would be great to do. If somebody has a tight budget, and a lot of small firm architects do for their marketing, uh, you know, one of the things that we struggle with is like, should we be, should we be even concentrating on Facebook? Should we be concentrating on Twitter? Uh, you know, if if you had to just point to one, and I realize you're going to pick on other ones because you're, I'm asking you to point to one. But which platform do you actually think is the best? Instagram, no question, because it's visual, so you can show your your works in progress. 
Um, you can really impart your firm culture. You know, if, if you've got people and if you do volunteer work, work on committees, that's the kind of thing that you can grasp as well. You can, besides just your work, what are some things that, that inspire you? You know, is there a piece of art, or a piece of music, or dance, or whatever it is, and then people get to know who, who you are and who your firm is, personally. It's re I, I think it's really important. Not everyone needs to be on every platform, for sure. And um, and look at the ones also that your, that your clients are on. You know, tag people, like other people's posts, interact. Um, my social media uh, specialist at my firm, she goes, it's called social media. So be social. Uh, I have a question for you. Um, how about offline, in person? Where's the best? Because uh, we've been talking to a lot of architects. I know a firm that's physically moved to, like, let's say, a new city, Minneapolis. And it still took them like 10 years to really get those projects there. What's your recommendation for kind of in-person marketing? Go where the clients are. Um, go to, uh, you know, ULI events or, or business developer events and network like crazy. And have, I still believe in business cards. I know there's all kinds of ways of skirting about it, but I, you know, I'm a believer. Maybe I'm old fashioned that way. I've been so happy to finally give people my business cards after a couple of years. And make sure that you're not doing it four point, you know, white on white embossed. It's really hard to read. Go ahead. You got some? Yeah, I have a question, Julie. Um, you can hear me, right? Because we're having some technical issues over here, so I want to make Loudly sure everything. Loudly and clearly. All right. Um, have you walked the floor? Yes, I have. So who here? is doing it right? What is one, one company or one brand that you sort of popped out at you and said, well, there's somebody that's going to get some attention to, to this week? There, um, there's an acoustical product from uh, China. It's really unusual. And so they built, their, um, they built the booth out of that, which is wise. Um, so it, it's tactile. You see it. You really see that product kind of in action and, and what you can do. I was and impressed with that. And how about um, an architect, not necessarily have to be here, but an architect that's doing it right um, to sort of as a case study and what's making them a little bit more unique than, than others that you've seen? Can you point out one firm that's sort of kicking butt? All of my firms. Of course. Um. So there's your opportunity to pitch one. Well, um, there's a, one of our, our new, well, we've been working together for about a year, um, a little more than a year, Relativity Architects. And they have an interesting uh, range of typologies. They're quite specialists in, in multi-tenant, particularly affordable housing. They're also really dominant in the entertainment studio thing. So those things seem like very, you know, counter, but so they're keeping, you know, um, expertise in, into pretty diverse markets. Um, Is there anything specific that they're doing that's sort of making them stand out? 
or it's something that you're doing for them that makes them stand out? Well, I, again, imparting who, who they are. We're, we're getting them on conferences, on podcasts, um, so that they can get their personalities out. They're very engaging people. And we like to take a look at who, who these people are, right? Who, when I... When we start off and we write our bios and kind of interview them, you know, I say, our, your PR bio is going to be very different from your marketing bio because your clients want to know about project, you know, delivery, but the media doesn't, right, or don't. Um, and so, like, uh, one of the principals, Tima Bell, he went to architecture school he says, to become a better painter. That was his intention so that he could understand, like viscerally understand form and shape. And then he got bit by the architecture. Um, his, his partner, Scott Sullivan, comes uh, more from mathematics, you know, so, and then wanted something more creative. So I, I want to know who the people are beyond, even beyond the architecture. Another young firm we're working with is and more and partner and more partners, um, and so they're also developing their own, you know, several of their own projects. So being proactive in that way um, is is really great. All right, we have a our, our next guest. We're going to overlap, so you're sticking around, mm -hmm. and the idea is that we're going to overlap guests and. Someone just walked in here. You want to introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Todd Redding, CEO of Charette Venture Group. What, is, what does Charette Venture Group do? Uh, CVG helps uh, small to mid-sized firms run better businesses. We've got teams that focus on marketing, brand development, websites, content, uh, finance operations, hiring, recruitment, management consulting, everything related to running an architecture firm except design. We don't do any design. Besides marketing, <laughs> what air do you normally see when firms come to you and, and say evaluate us? You know, most most firm owners uh, come to us and they're just they sort of feel stuck or overwhelmed. They're doing it all themselves. Uh, maybe they've run their business for five years or more, and and they just they don't know how to get it to the next level. And they're you know they weren't trained to run businesses, and so they really don't know what to do next. Uh, so we come in and we really help them prioritize things, make sure they've got the right people doing the right things in the right places, organize their finances in the right way. So many firms just look in the rearview mirror when it comes to finances, and we help them really forecast and project where they're going to be, where they want to be, uh, and we help them get there. Do If I could ask you a question, yeah. um, even though they're, they're small firms, what about succession? Do you have them yeah. do succession plans? We that's do. one of the biggest... Yeah. Probably half of our firms uh, are working on or have worked on some plan for succession. That doesn't mean that they've implemented it. Uh, our belief is you can't start early enough. And so, uh, yeah, we help them, you know, we help them organize those plans. Some have clear, uh, clear next generation leadership in place and some need to recruit it. So we, you know, we fill in all of those gaps to try to help them develop that long-term plan. It's really one of the fundamental criteria of working with us is that you really want to create something that's going to live beyond yourself. If you're just looking to be a sole proprietor and at the end of your career shut the door and turn off the lights, we're not the right we're not the right firm. We're we're positioned to help firms grow and create something permanent. 
What uh, valuation metrics when you're looking at succession, not just handing over the firm maybe internally, but um, EBITDA, and I know there's a couple other ones. Which ones do you kind of point out to say, hey, you should really be watching this number? It's a good question. Um, I mean, we look at a lot, a lot more than, than EBITDA. Um, so we really believe in monitoring utilization rates and the billable ratio. So how many hours are you recording as billable, but how many did you actually bill the client for? two critical metrics, if those are in line and the chart of accounts is in line, you know, then you can start to work towards a more traditional formula using EBITDA, you know, two to three times EBITDA would be a fair number, I think. Most most firm owners think it's five, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we try to work with them to understand the real long-lasting value of the firm. We don't do official valuation studies very often, um, but we certainly work with them to, when we're doing the succession planning, to, you know, have a plan that's makes sense and balance with the finance. When you do the succession, it was, I had a, I've had a gal on our podcast uh, two times now. Her name is Michelle Siler Tucker, and her, her book is Exit Rich. And it's the, the idea is from the beginning, like you just said, that you are you should be ready to, you should be thinking about your exit strategy and how to sell, when to sell, all of that stuff, get all the numbers. That's where Al's getting these fancy acronyms from. One of the questions I asked her and then I'm going to ask you is that I, I was asking her like what does it look is it better to sell internally or is it better to sell externally and uh, I had thought it was going to be oh, internally obviously but I didn't realize you know the risk with that the risk is what she explained as well then all everybody who's inside sees all the numbers they see how it works and it can completely sour the whole thing such that like you basically destroyed your firm if it doesn't go correctly so like you don't have to tell me exactly how, but I'm wondering generally how. Like, what is the proper way to even do it? Well, and how to unveil that? Yeah, I, we do find that most many firms don't spend enough time uh, investing in the training and mentorship of the next generation of leadership. I mean, you really have to teach your staff what it means to run a business, what it means to own a business. Yep, and that takes time. Um, we really encourage firms to do that also so that, you know, you guys all know the story. People get fed up with the firm that they're at. They think it's easy to just go put up their own shingle and run their own business. And then five years later, they're like, oh my God, I got to worry about cash flow and employees and payroll. And so let's open their eyes to those pain points now so they stay at your firm and they're not, uh, they're not seduced to go start their own. Um, but just training people uh, what it means to run a business is really, really important. And I don't think you can start that early enough. So how many of the, uh, the people that are getting fed up and leaving because they can do it better know the term EBITDA? <laughs> <laughs> Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, hey, depreciation. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> All right, now we, now we have a definition of the, the acronym there. <laughs> are you teaching and lecturing at schools? We are I mean, not. Pro practice? We are not. We, we, have, not. we have sort of attempted that. Um, we have found most schools are not really embracing the kinds of things that we're talking about. Um, but I think AIA is, is certainly moving in that direction. They've had a lot of the you know the business forums have started to evolve. They really have embraced us to be to be a part of that. Um, so I think the industry as a whole is recognizing more and more every year. Entre Architect is a big part of that. I mean, you know these uh, these, these these movements I think are really raising the issue of running. Uh, businesses is a hard thing to do and it needs more education and training. Todd has, um, I think every semester, has spoken with my pro practice class and he's been on my Shark Tank panel. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> thanks to, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> thanks to Todd for that. 
Yeah, we, we do pro practice a little different in my class. Well, we, we look, we're always open to those opportunities to speak to classes. We do a lot of speaking at AI events and other kinds of events around the country. It's really one of the best ways to get our message out. Jeff, hit me up for pro practice on there. We'll do it. We'll do it. So we, we run it when the school where I teach approached me about teaching pro practice. I said, yeah, I'd be interested in that if I can run it like a startup incubator. And they said yes. I don't think they knew what they were saying yes to, but they haven't fired me yet. So, And we just we just passed through reaccreditation, so I guess it's okay. It's a good sign. <laughs> It's only because Todd Redding has been on, right, on my right. Shark Tank panel every right. year. I think it's a great format. And, and I think Mark as well. Yeah. It's a great format. Todd, you, you guys still host the competition, correct? We don't. Uh, it's a good question, and I'm glad you asked it. We did for the first uh, five or six years. We held an annual business plan competition. It was uh, successful, to, to be honest with you. We just got real busy. <laughs> and it was a very expensive endeavor. Uh, we gave out a $10,000 cash prize at the end of it. Uh, and thank you to Jeff and Mark and others who helped out with it. You know, I, it was a good thing to do. Uh, we'd love to support another organization to do it, but we, uh, you know, we've got 15 employees now, and they are all 100% focused on our clients. And we just have not been able to invest in that in that exercise in the last couple of years. I, I want somebody to pick that up because this is sorry, this is getting a little selfish because I'm going to talk about my class. But, yeah, yeah. But I want somebody to pick that up because I want an opportunity to make it more real for my class. I want, to, I want to find a business plan competition. So that's what we do is they, throughout the semester, they have to come up with an idea, find a, identify a problem, come up with an idea, build a business around it, and then it culminates the final as Shark Tank. But I'd like to take the next step and find them all a business plan competition that, um, that they can enter and, and compete. And I think what you were doing, they wouldn't. They wouldn't all fit into that model, certainly, because I don't. I don't require that it's an architecture firm. I mean, develop a piece of software if you want as your business plan. But um, well, we have all of the infrastructure. You know, all of the stuff that we developed when we were running it, um, and we'd be happy to partner with anybody that was interested in running it. We just don't have the human resources to to put it together every year. Uh, going back to firms, when you're looking at firms and helping improve firms, what utilization rate are you trying to get them to hit and what uh, profit margin are, are you looking for? That's a great question. So firms should be able to achieve a 10 to 15% profit margin, 10 to 15% of your revenue, uh, after paying everybody market wages and, and doing fair distributions to owners. You should be able to achieve that. Utilization rates on average, a firm of five to 10 people, is going to run somewhere around 65% utilization. Um, and that's only driven down because you've got an administrator typically in that mix that's only 5% billable, right? So that drives down your average. So you've got a two or three 80% uh, or a higher utilization. And then firm owners, you know, typically 50%. They need to spend at least half of their time doing business development and running the business. Um, so average utilization of a firm that size, I would say 65%. Billable ratio should be above 80%. So you really need to watch the billable ratio because it's great if we celebrate that we build all these hours, we recorded all these hours as billable. But if you got to the invoicing stage and decided, oh, we can't invoice our client for all of those hours, we spent too many hours on this or that, then you're not celebrating. No, no pizza parties. So, uh, Everybody wants a pizza party. What's the difference? And I thought that that would be the utilization rate. Utiliz the 
the utilization rate is the number of hours that you recorded as billable, the percentage of your total hours worked uh, that were recorded as billable, and then billable ratio is of all of those hours, how much do we actually bill the clients for? Because most firms don't bill 100% of the hours they record as billable. They had to learn something, they had to do something, they spend a little more time on this or that. But it can get if that gets out of control and you're delivering twice as many hours to your client as you're actually billing them for, you're training them to expect double the product, right? And then you're going to get into price wars in every project you go through. Yeah. Uh, since you're on the number side of, of things, you know, much more than the, the designy architects here, is uh, I would just I've been asking everybody too is like uh, so you know we can't we can't um, not see the headlines you know recession economy where's it headed what's your opinion do you think we're headed for a soft recession a hard recession a depression are you optimistic pessimistic I believe in focusing on the things that I can control and I would tell every firm owner to stop worrying about it you can't do anything about it. Um, and put your time and energy into developing consistent marketing programs, consistent business development activities. You know, can work on the things that you can control. I, I, I like the idea of consistency. You know, I mean, uh, a mistake that, that happens when someone brings on an agency is, you know, we manage people's expectations. But like after three months, they're like, well, why aren't on the cover of every magazine like it doesn't work that way and then if they want to quit the process they truly might as well just have burned three months of that money you know it is a patient cumulative type of process and we balance you know the quick web media with the glacially paced you know print media and stuff so that they can get that exposure but Doing it consistently. Yeah, we, you know, we all. If, if you take if you take a a three month break, you're six months behind. That's right. And we all know the cycle that so many firms get into. They they get really busy, so they put it aside. They focus on the work, on the clients, and then they wake up and they're like, "Holy crap! Every project we have is invoiced this month. We don't have anything for next month." And then they run out and they put time and energy into business development or marketing cycle just goes up and down. So we really work with clients to break out of that, develop consistent systems. We provide a lot of those marketing services and business development coaching and a lot of that to, to our clients so that it stays ongoing. Yeah, that's my mantra is hire a professional. Right. I mean, right. and that's that's why people shouldn't design their own anything. Right. If they're not a designer, hire the professional. That's my, one of my life models. Julie, you talked about uh, managing expectations. Can you expand on that a little bit? Like, how do you how do you get someone to adjust their expectations, and and what should their expectations be on the turnaround of uh, um, a campaign that you're going to do? Yeah, I mean, we the way we set up our accounts, we do spend the first uh, couple months doing a deep dive into the firm. I mean. We know the business, we know the business of architecture, um, but we need to, to really understand who they are, and we create a plan um, out of that. That doesn't mean that while we're doing that, you know, we still go after, you know, whatever kind of placements and articles and, and anything that's very time, you know, time-oriented. Um, but we do say, you know, the first three months, 
certainly there's, you know, not, not to have the humongous expectations um, because it does, it is cumulative. And there are things that we send out, we let the media know that we know that might not be picked up or might not be picked up certainly right away. We've had, you know, media will earmark that and then come back to us and say, oh, hey, we're interested in this project because we're doing something on vegetative roofs now or, or whatever the topic is. And so we, we do try, you know, that the advent, I, I've been doing this a long time, um, and so the advent of, of the internet certainly helped in terms of, of turnaround. And it, again, that is something that we have no control over. It's like, what issue is it going to be in? Well, they said it would be in this. But, you know, I started out as a magazine editor. So I knew it was placed only when it like was physically in my hands. Or, so you know it's going to be there when it's actually posted online. So it's, it's a different kind of mindset. Yeah. We do try to educate them. Todd, is it, is it similar in your case as far as managing your clients' expectations and how do you kind of go about it? It's a great question. Um, we go, we begin every relationship with a full assessment process where we gather financials, uh, a bunch of information about the firm. We go through a series of discovery meetings and then we deliver this big final report at the end with recommendations about where you should prioritize your time, what your key challenges are, you know. So we provide that assessment and that really gives our clients a chance to get to know us, us get to know them. And then at the end of that, we decide whether we're going to propose this longer term relationship. Um, yeah. So, you know, through that process, it gives us the opportunity to really talk about what it is we do and how we do it. So that when we get to that, you know, that launch pad, uh, we're all on the same page. I, I won't yeah. say I won't say we're perfect at it. You know, are there some, sometimes some misunderstandings? Sure, but but we we really believe in that assessment process to, to begin the relationship. Much like Julie said, you know, taking a deep dive into the client and understanding them. That's kind. Of, that's what we do during these. Yeah. Um, is there is there kind of a typical timeline that you're looking at, or is it just kind of depend on on that interaction with that particular firm? No, it is, that's a great question. Um, our assessment typically takes four to six weeks, depending upon the pace of you know, meetings and gathering materials. Uh, and then if we do propose a long-term relationship, it's five years, minimum of five years. Now, you know, some people might scoff at that, but we want to ha have a permanent impact on the firm, right? Um, so it takes that long to do our work and really have that permanent impact takes that long. Now our clients pay us a percentage of revenue. So we don't bill by the hour, we don't bill travel and lodging, they pay us a percentage of revenue so the only way we can grow our revenues is we grow theirs. Um, so it's a very unique relationship. It's structured, so the reason we're called Shred Venture Group is it's very much structured like an investment firm. Yeah, their success is your success. <laughs> exactly, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Well, while we have uh, been learning more about Charette Venture Group, Julie Taylor has uh, exited the building, so to speak, and Bill from RCAT has joined us. Hi, guys. Hi, Bill. <laughs> Who are you and what hey, do you Bill. do? I'm one of the, the guys that runs RCAT.com. 
So anyone out there who has a problem with the site, um, email me at bill at arcat.com. Okay. That was dangerous. <laughs> so, so make sure you're sending no, the, the fan mail there. <laughs> Send your fan mail to bill at arcat.com. Yeah. So uh, give us, uh, just for the record, if there's anything wrong with charettebg.com, do not email Todd at charette. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing about it. Nothing. Email bill. E- email, yeah, yes, email bill. Yeah, I'll take care of it. Bill at charette. So in, in case there's anyone that doesn't know what our cat is. I mean, we've been occupying this booth for several days, so thank you for your hospitality. But no, thanks for being here, guys. In case there's anybody that, that is not familiar with our cat, what do you do? Uh, we're a library of content and building product information. Uh, we have CAD details, BIM objects, specifications, videos, catalogs, you name it, we got it. Data sheets, certifications, uh, CEU courses. Um, it, it should be your first stop if you need content or building product information. I was having a conversation earlier today with Adam over there with the fantastic hat. Hi, Adam, in the fantastic hat. Uh, we were talking about what RCAT is and the the uh, the value to the the practitioner side, to the professional, to the architect. And it's it's interesting to walk around. I don't know how many I don't know how many booths we have here. I don't know how many square feet. It's a lot of booths. But I walk around and I see this giant RCAT A that's behind me right now, but I also see it on the tables at a lot of booths around here on the expo floor. So why do they have the, the, the smaller version of the big RCAT A on their tables? Uh, we, we want them to promote the fact to architects wandering by that their content is up on our website. Um, so it's in the right CSI format. Um, it's consistent from CAD detail to CAD detail, from BIM object to BIM object. Um, that user can go support that manufacturer by going to arcat.com and using their content. Is there anything I can do if, I, if I've got a favorite manufacturer here on the expo floor and I don't see the Arcat A, what do I need to do? Hey, you got to get your spec on arcat.com because I'm going to spec you next week for a, for a hospital project I'm working on. You better go call them. I love it. Hey, hey Todd, quick question for you. Um, do you guys for CVG get into the architecture of the business and sort of rec- making recommendations like you should use RCAT or things like that? It's, yeah, we. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. I mean, we have 35 firms currently under contract with us right now, so we've grown to a point that that starts to make sense. Um, we've kind of stayed away from recommending specific software. Um, we do have a person on our team who specializes in ARCHICAD. About a quarter of our firms are ARCHICAD users, so we try to help out uh, in that way. But yeah, I was actually sitting here thinking, Bill, I, I should talk to you about, you know, what, what if the entire CVG community used RCAT, what would that look like? And I think we're getting to a place, you know, even a year ago, that number was below 20, so I didn't have a whole lot of buying power. But um, but today, I think, you know, our community is growing rapidly, and I think uh, it does start to make sense to say, is there some economies of scale we can use to, to bring more value to our clients? Yeah, we could give you a discount. And that's funny because everything we offer is free to all... <laughs> Half off a zero. Yeah, right. We'll put that in our marketing <laughs> material. Everybody gets a free subscription to our cat. There you go. Yeah. So Tell us about the podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, our cat now has a podcast called Detail. Um, so now all the great um, inside the firm users have another one to listen to. That's yes, on the list. 
and it's hosted by Cherise Lakeside. She's uh, one of the top spec riders in the country, and she's fantastic. And uh, the interviews she conducts with, um, with other architects, uh, very educational. They go through problems that they had on projects. Um, I'm not an architect, and I find it fascinating. So I'm sure you know all the architects and spec writers out there will really find it valuable. And it's beautifully produced, thanks to Demetrius. Arcat.com <laughs> slash podcast. Yes. Arcat.com slash podcast to subscribe. And we're going to continue that conversation, but wanted to thank Todd for joining us. Todd, where can people find out more about CBG? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Charette, C-H-A-R-R-E-T-T-E, V as in Victor, G as in George, dot com is our website. I'm Todd at ShareteVG.com. You can send me an email anytime. We schedule intro meetings with firms all the time for free just to get to know them and decide if they're interested in our assessment. So anybody interested, just drop me an email. And thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Thanks, thanks so Todd. Much, Todd. We're going to bring in uh, our next guest, Here we can put it down. Uh, Sandra Little. And while, while Sandra's getting settled in, we'll uh, continue the conversation about uh, detail a little bit. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more and our cat. Um, but yeah, that, that's been a, a fun um, addition to the collection that you guys have at, at RCAT of all the, the, con the free content that, that you're already putting out to have this audio element now. Uh, and I think you guys do video as well. Can you talk a little bit about, um, or I've seen some video on your YouTube. Um, can you talk a little bit about the resources that you that you are putting out, the digital multimedia content? Uh, we have a boatload of YouTube videos from all the manufacturers that, that are hooked up to the website. Um, so, so if you're looking at how to install a window or um, how a roofing system works, um, odds are we have a YouTube video that'll, that'll, um, that'll address that, that'll be useful to you on your next project. Yeah, and then the the podcast now has this audio element that's tied to specific stories of buildings that go wrong or that that work out well, uh, that adds that additional content um, or or knowledge base to the the listeners, your audience, and then uh, the the cool thing that you guys do is on your website where the podcast lives, you have links of all the products and things that are discussed in each episode that link directly back to uh, catalogs and specs and all the different things that you guys, the resources that you have available. Is that, that's right? Yeah. So like a metal wall panel is a typical topic that, that may come up. Uh, so we'll link that directly into the website and you'll get a, a long list of uh, metal panel wall manufacturers. Uh, as well as, like you said, links to their CAD details, their Revit models, um, videos, you name it. Yeah. As well as uh, photographs right below that of whatever project they were talking about. Yeah. Um, we'll have to get uh, uh, get you guys on there, Sanja, uh, as a guest uh, for detail to talk about some of the work that you're doing. But we didn't get to really introduce you, Sanja. So can you tell us um, your your title and, and company and all that stuff? Hello, everybody. Thank you uh, for having me on. 
I am Sandra Little. I'm a principal and director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Quinn Evans. Uh, so I'm out of the Detroit office, and uh, I also have a side project. So I am uh, also co-founder of Noir Design Party. It's a project documenting the work of African American architects. Mm. Uh, are you guys familiar with Noir Design Party? That that project. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, about that project and 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 first what? I guess first kind of a quick snapshot of what it is and then talk a little bit about what inspired you to do it. Okay. Uh, well, it is a project, like I said, documenting the work of African-American architects. We have started our our project uh, out, of, out of Michigan. So we started there because we were uh, noticing that a lot of people were like, well, I don't know of any black architects. There's not a lot of us. You know, it's only, point, uh, only 2% of uh, the whole population of our licensed architects. Uh, so we, we started to look back, because we didn't know the history. We didn't know who the first licensed African-American architect was and all of that. So we've been documenting that. We have a website. Uh, you can go check it out. Uh, and that's kind of what, what got started. Got it started. And since then, we've been doing tours, and um, we've been uh, doing exhibits of the project, presentations and lectures. So AIA Detroit has been really pumping us up. Uh, and it's been really, really cool. It's a really cool project. Are you getting into the schools, even into the middle schools? Because I know that's where so many people, whatever the profession is, doesn't have to be architect, is some adult just tells them, oh, I see you drawing there in a building, you should be an architect. <laughs> yeah, so we have been uh, in a, a couple of schools. We've been, um, we've had uh, children and, and teenagers on our tours as well. Uh, and uh, I actually have my uh, sidekick with me here today. My son Wallace is here, and he actually did a presentation for Black History Month on one of our architects. And uh, kids in the class were like, "Oh my goodness, I went to that church. I can't. I didn't know it was designed by a black architect." So it's been really cool. It's really been a great exposure and letting people know the history. And it is a you know a possible career option for anyone. Being an architect, are you sure you want more people to be architects? <laughs> well, right now at Quinn Evans, we're hiring. So, yes, we're looking for yeah. more architects. So, it's, this is a rare time for us. But, yeah, in the past, I probably would have been like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a very unique time to have all these firms looking. Like, every single firm out there is looking for work or looking for uh, employees. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well. um, can you talk a little bit more about um, for Noir Design Party? You guys looked at sort of I think you call them the trailblazers, and can you talk a little detail? Give a little detail about those that you looked at and um, and and people that you've already spoken to. Okay, yeah, we basically started out with putting every all, all the architects and generations right we we're like how do you tackle this project <laughs> that was the first thing so we created uh the first uh generation who practiced in like 1930s to 1960s uh is the trailblazer generation right so that's when they started that's when they started to actually come to the, to the university of michigan and michigan schools uh so that generation it's hard to believe that the first licensed african-american architect wasn't until 1932 uh, actually, 1937, 1932 is when he graduated from the University of Michigan. Uh, so just finding out that origin of when everything started and then kind of working our way from that. So we have four generations that we're looking at. Uh, the, the current generation is kind of that fourth generation. Uh, and we uh, have learned a lot through all, the, through all of those, right? So those trailblazers were the ones who did the men's history modern buildings, very cool. And you're looking out with those throughout the city. Uh, and that second generation, 
was actually the generation that was practicing when I came out of college. And it was like, it was a lot more uh, African-American-owned firms when I, I graduated college than there is now, actually. Uh, so just seeing their career trajectory and how they interact with each other and actually the effect of Michigan, right, and Detroit. It's like a lot of architects were, you know, educated at, the, you know, Michigan schools and then have branched out across the country. So we're just tracking the trail now, like finding other ones in different cities that come from Michigan. And it's like, oh, yeah, I went to U of D and I went to U of M, you know, so we're, it's been really interesting. Yeah, since you're, since you're tracking this, the spread outward then, is there anybody that is trying to do like uh, satellites of what you're doing from other from other universities and everything. So that's interesting. We um, we had a project with uh, n the National Organization of Minority Architects. So when Noma at the 50th conference last year was in Detroit, so it was like a perfect test uh, test fit for us, right? So we did a Wikipedia editathon, and we took our our trailblazers say, okay, can we set up Wikipedia pages for them? Because you can't Google black architects and find them, you know. So uh, now some of those trailblazers are, are, you can find them online. You can, you know, you can Google and search and find out information about them because of our project. So that Wikipedia editathon is now going to be, it was a pilot in Detroit, but it's going to be taken on by other NOMA chapters. Like, so can we replicate this across the country and get, uh, you know, history bubbling up from each of the uh, chapters and get that minority uh, voice online because like they weren't you know they weren't on Google back then so it's like we have to be the ones to go back and put that information online so very similar to like what you were talking about what you know, Erica you building this library right you building all this content online that wasn't available for for these uh, architects so it's interesting That's Sandra what's what's the long-term vision of Noir Design Party I, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, talk about how it got to where it is now, and then what the long-term okay. vision is. Okay, so it basically started out, uh, like I said, you know, with the, just the thing that I have a co-founder that's working with us, uh, Karen Burton, uh, and we were just like, okay, we, the first thing was like, okay, just let's just find out who they are and let people know who they are. Uh, but when it started, we started to get lecture requests and different requests for speaking. Uh, things started to grow, and then we did an exhibit. So the exhibit's been on display at the University of Detroit Mercy. It's been on display at a NOMA conference. It's been on display um, in a community in Detroit for uh, a West Seven Mile that has a lot of work done by African American architects. So it's just been steadily growing, right? So then that we did, we gave a panel discussion at, around that 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 exhibit, uh, and that got funded by the National Arts uh, Foundation through the University of Detroit Mercy. So that was nice. And it's just been growing just like that, very organic. Uh, and, we, and we've just, like I said, grown to now talking about a podcast, <laughs> which we hadn't before. Uh, and so it's just, it's just the interest level that people have shown uh, in the work was more than we anticipated. Uh, it was very personal for us at first, but now we see everybody is very interested in it as a topic because it has not been, you know, been shared. So the history buffs are loving it. <laughs> Sandra, has the study of that timeline sort of informed the work that you do at Quinn Evans? Uh, has it evolved the work that you do or how you come up with programs or anything like that? You know, it, it, it's definitely touched uh, Quinn Evans in a way that um, uh, it actually started before I came to Quinn Evans. So Quinn Evans, I had my own firm before, Centric Design Studio, and we teamed up with Quinn Evans for this project that was looking at uh, the history of civil rights sites across the, the uh, state of, uh, or actually across the city of, of Detroit. And that project, when we got into it, uh, we started to find 
uh, a lot of the civil rights uh, led efforts were done through churches and different things like that. So a lot of the black architects worked for those churches and they ended up becoming a part of our study and our historical registration nomination that we did for that project. And then now um, they have gotten a lot of funding through the National Parks uh, Service for uh, African American Heritage Fund. And now some of those churches are being renovated. One is the Second Baptist Church, which is in Greektown, downtown Detroit. It has a brutalist uh, addition that was done by Nathan Johnson. And it's been really interesting now that those works are getting funding to restore those projects. So actually now we're talking to those same churches about helping to, to restore it. And you know, Quinn Evans has a rich preservation background, so this has been right up our, our alley. So it's, it's, been, it's been, a like I said, a domino effect more than I expected. Has there been anything at the conference that you've experienced that you want to share? What's the best thing that you've experienced here while you've been here in Chicago? Wow, I have two great seminars here. So, uh, one was actually this morning. It was on. Uh, it was called Accidental Preservation. And so I'm really attracted to that one because that's what I felt like I became. So uh, that was done by, uh, what's his name? Uh, why am I forgetting his name? Uh, it's a gentleman out of North Carolina. He was really... He, he does documentation on um, mid-century modern houses, and that's his whole focus. Uh, so it started in North Carolina, and then now he has an online uh, archive that he allows anybody to upload to who has anything to do with mid-century modern houses. And he's like, I'm not going outside of that. I'm not doing commercial building. So that was good. And it was a really great... Um, seminar yesterday that was, was put on was that other was that it smart yes it's yes. smart yes yes yeah that was it oh Ed, george, Ed, was, was it george george yeah. george smart yeah i can't remember Ed, that. yeah george. u.s modernist yes u.s yes that is the website yeah. yes george smart yes yeah. Yeah. so that was a that was a really great webinar uh, i mean um a seminar this morning and uh yesterday there was one put on by the aia large firm roundtable and the young architects uh, group, and it was like called a mini MBA, and it was really interesting to hear the younger architects and the fellows and how they interacted to put together this presentation for one. But the subjects that they picked were very on time for today, right? The, you know, the, one of the topics was hybrid work, right? So, so that was very interesting to hear the take on that and uh, some statistics behind some things that's happening, and it was really interesting. At the, we had roundtable discussions after each topic that the small firms really hadn't had anybody to talk to about this. So them being at this this seminar was really great because now they're hearing what the large firms are doing. So it was really, really an interesting conversation. And the other topic, other two topics for that were, uh, they also talked about uh, the business of architecture, so getting everybody to understand the financials and how, like, how can an everyday intern come ask for a raise and know what that really means to the firm, right? As far as the multiplier and what and what your direct hours really are and how that impacts the ripple effect of that. So, and the young architects being a part of that conversation was very interesting. And then the last topic that we talked about. Well, that that second that second uh, presentation, it's exciting to see AIA talking about business, yes. right? Because because twenty twenty five years ago, when I started here, you go to a conference and they were not talking about business at all, and and to, almost to the fact where you weren't allowed to talk about business because you might talk about money and you might talk about fees, 
and then oh, we'd be in trouble if we start talking about fees. So they just sort of avoided the whole thing, and so it's you've sort of gradually seen business start start coming back to the AIA, and it's great to see that yeah, they're it was, it was, focused like I said, on it. Was a great, I said the title of the, the seminar was great as well. So it was, it was a really good good seminar, and uh, like I said, it's just it's just good to be back in person with everybody. Great to see everybody here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been talking to Mark online by Zoom forever, and now we're right. actually face to face. So I'm like, can't believe it. Yeah. Do you have a uh, African American architect that you like, or that people should look up, or start to get aware of? Uh, so I do have a favorite. Uh, his name is Nathan Johnson. Uh, he's out of only really practice in Michigan. He has a couple of buildings outside, but not a lot. He actually passed away. He was the last trailblazer architect that we had. He passed away on November fifth of last year. But you got his story. I got his story. He's been. We've interviewed him three times, and that was one of the things that uh, the seminar talked about this morning. He was like, "Go interview all the eighty-year-old people you know and record them." He said because they have and they remember all of that all that stuff from their practice. Even if they don't remember what happened yesterday, they can remember all the stuff that happened in the nineteen sixties for their practice. So it was it, it was very. Uh, you know, great to get to know him uh, before him passing away because it was over a three-year period that we talked to Nathan and talked to him on different times and recorded interviews with him. And, and then uh, a great New York Times write-up is on him online. Uh, they did an obituary piece on, uh, actually, um, yeah, an obituary piece on him in November. So it was just really, really cool to see uh, him be one of the last living ones and and, and really getting to know him versus the others. Uh, we. I got to know one other trailblazer really, really well because Noma gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award a couple of years back, and I was able to catch him before he passed away. But that was another inspiration to start the project, too, just seeing them right. basically really starting to pass away. Yeah, if you don't catch those stories while they're around, you're going to lose them forever. Right. That sounds like a good project for uh, for Gable Media to sort of <laughs> to search out all the 80-year-old architects and get their stories while we can. That is yeah, true. Yeah. That would be a, yeah. that would be a great interview process. It yeah. is a lot of history there and a lot of a lot of stories. We have our next guest, so I want to thank Bill from RCAT to, for joining us here. We're going to bring Thanks in Ed Shannon. While he's coming in, I love the idea that you're capturing all these stories real close to uh, right. of the elderly. Because essentially, I did it with my grandma. I knew how she now. You know, grandmas are, are going. Mm-hmm. She was telling all these stories of the old days. And after an hour, I go, Grandma, how many people got electrocuted and died in our family? And she, and she was just like, what? And I was like, yeah, uncle, your grandpa. Like, it, it, she was like, well, I guess it was, they had looser regulations back then. Wow. <laughs> it was a theme. It was crazy. Everybody, everybody who's a podcaster here should be. I interviewed my grandma for like two hours, and nobody knows about it in my family. And that the idea is I'm going to cut episodes for each individual person because oh, does she start when, when, when she, after she passes. So anyway, side tangential, yeah. not architecture. No, that's good though. That's good. Well, I want to welcome uh, Edward Shannon to the to the show here today. Thanks for coming, buddy. Thank you. Uh, he's an active member of the Entree Architect community. Um, but I would love for you to give your own introduction. What, do you, what who are you? What do you do? <clears throat> well, um, I am a uh, sole practitioner architect. Uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. I've been in Des Moines now for uh, 10 years. Originally from Chicago, um, but did go to Iowa State for undergrad. And uh, it was kind of nice moving there because had a lot of old connections I rekindled. Um, I started my practice in 1999 and had a sole practice while I taught 
at uh, Judson University uh, for six years, from 1999 to 2005, um, and uh, did mainly uh, Chicago. Was working in the Chicago suburbs, big residential renovation market in Chicago. Um, so a lot of architects hang their shingles, and you know, that's what kind of work uh, you can do. Um, I. Uh, then I went to work for a couple of different design build firms and then uh, moved to, uh, prior to moving to Des Moines, I moved to Waterloo, Iowa, um, almost 12 years to the day in 2010 to teach at a community college. I taught architectural drafting community college for two years and then came to Des Moines, worked for uh, a firm for about a little over four years and then reestablished my practice in 2017. Yeah, and you were recently on Mark's show, right? Yes. To talk about what it's like to be sole practitioner. Yes. Yeah, I, um, I, I guess uh, I, I came to the realization um, I, I like working by myself, for myself. Had you ever had employees? Uh, no. Okay. No. Um, I, uh, I, I read once where, uh, I think it was in one of the AIA surveys, the firm surveys, 30% of the AIA firms, not not architects, but the firms are one person. So I I started thinking to myself, wow, that's a big, you know, that's a lot and of And I think it's firms. actually half if you don't, if you include the non-AIA. Yeah. And then like another 30% are the two to five person firms. Yeah. Um, and uh, I uh, I recall reading in a, a practice book, and it was written by a sole practitioner, and someone, uh, it, was, it was kind of a question and answer book, but someone said uh, uh, something something akin to, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i a sole practitioner, and my, my biggest liability is I can't get projects done in a timely way. And the guy said, flip that to you know, the asset of being a sole practitioner is that your clients get every bit of your expertise on every aspect of their project. So I, I started to think about those things, the, uh, the, the 30% of, of firms, the fact that this practice type can be seen as an asset, not a liability, and that it can be, you know, it can be a destination. Some, I mean, it's often looked at as it's we're, we're gonna you know I'm gonna start off on my own but as soon as I get bigger projects I'm gonna hire people you know well it, it could be no I'm gonna stay this way and the way I grow my practice is by getting better projects better clients and I grow inwardly not you know not really outwardly um, so that's kind of my my growth and it's my it's just it's the way I really I really like practicing um, now, um, on that note, what is yeah. what is one thing that you've realized yourself that you've grown better inwardly? Well, um, yeah, I think just just the the, the confidence in you know in, in selling myself, selling this model. Um, I'm I'm very confident when when I talk to people. I I you know and I and I say um, you know it's just me. And I and I would say right now about half my projects are additions, 
probably another 25% are custom homes, easy vacation homes. Another 25% are small commercial projects. Um, but I, I, I like to say, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a sole practitioner. I specialize in small projects, you know, residential, commercial. Um, when you get, when you hire me, you get me for every aspect of your project. Now, where I'm from, there's not a lot of sole practitioners and there's not a lot of residential architects. There's a lot of mid-sized firms that do schools and healthcare and, you know, projects like they're, you're, you know, developer-driven. And once in a while, they'll get an addition to do. And it's usually a favor for a client. Right. And they say, well, you know, here, we've, we've just hired this summer intern. Here's a perfect project yeah. for them. We'll mm. give it... We'll give it to them to work because it because everyone knows residential is easy, and residential addition. And I tell people, I say, you know, or, I work, or they think rather. Yeah, they I, think. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, res, I, I think residential is equally hard in its own way. Thank it's, you. It has a very special niche. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. personal. It's right. so exactly. personal. Exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, I, I actually kind of shied away from residential projects because of that very reason, right? I was like. I really didn't have the time to go shopping with the client when I'm actually working on the school as well. So that it, it really does. There are certain clients that you need that special touch with, and that's kind of cool that you yeah. you, you offer that. You well, know? I I think um, I've been doing it long enough, and I and the other thing I, I just enjoy doing them. I don't look at them as filler work. I don't look at them as like you know this is going to be you know kind of a pain in the butt little project I have to do for someone. Something I I want to do you know, your addition, and I'm going to give it a lot of care and attention. And I tell them, I said, I've been doing this over 25 years, and you know what? I struggle with getting the roof lines right. I mean, it's, it is, it, it, you know, a lot of times it doesn't come easier. Trying to get that form, I, I, I call it, I don't want your addition to look like the tail is wagging the dog. Yeah, like literally, so, you don't want it to look like an addition. I mean, yeah, that's kind of yeah. the short of it. And yeah. so, you know, when you're making something bigger, that's, you know, so I work really hard to, you know, create that. Or if it's, you know, in my own case, if it's, if there's a stylistic precedent, we try to honor that. Sometimes houses don't have any style, so we, you know, we bring style into them and we bring form, you know, into them and give, you know, kind of create a new language. Yeah. So the, one of the biggest reasons I brought Edward on today and on that because is is to talk about residential architecture and whether my my my, uh, my stance on the subject is that I, I don't think there should be laws making it so that only architects. Can do residential architecture, and I and I realize I'm speaking at the AIA. I realize I'm in a residential architect. <laughs> right, right. I realize that my firm half of what we do is single-family homes. I understand the whole thing about that, but I am just a very firm believer, and I and I I feel like I'm, I'm not sure. So, Edward, I would love to hear from you. Like, yeah. what is your stance on that? Are you as hard to the wherever side I am? Well, I'm I'm probably more over to the other side, but I'd love to hear why. You can I ask you why you feel that way? Yeah, hundred percent. I think there's a, a couple different factors. Number one, life safety. Uh, what 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 with a house and a building inspector can't do during during inspections to ensure that all the codes are followed without an architect, right? We have so many homes that are built by builders that go through that whole process, and we aren't having mass casualties happen. So there's there's a whole life safety, and we can try to nerf the world entirely but it is physically impossible and at some point it becomes um extraneous and and overly burdensome and when it comes down to the cost of just houses right now the average cost of a house in the united states right now i looked it up this morning is three thousand three hundred and forty eight thousand seventy nine dollars <throat> first time home buyers 
right now are being priced out because now with interest rates rising, the average down payment is $27,400. So with, without any help from the family, that takes 92% of renters out of the market for even by being able to buy their first home because they only have a savings of about $1,500 on average. So then you couple with, okay, now are we gonna require architects, licensed architects to draw single family homes? And the average, the average price, according to the AIA, what you should be charging for a single family home was about 5%. So 5% of that $348, there's another $23,000. If we're really serious about affordable housing in America, are we really thinking we need to add more bureaucracy to the whole process? And, and I just wanna add one thing before Shannon comes in. Um, and I just thought about it because what you said and how you operate. Because I, I know some residential designers that are home designers in Colorado. They're amazing. They're probably better than Lance and I. I know some contractors Scott, that are really Scott good. Scott Renfro. Love that. Scott guy. Renfro. Um, and what happens is if you say it's only architecture firm, a lot of times it does get passed to that intern. And then as you're like, well, you got a guy, Scott, that's been designing homes forever. He hasn't, he didn't have the opportunity to go through college. I, maybe he did. You know, I'm just making, making that up. Uh, they have the experience, they have all this, they have the detention, they have the care, and then to somehow say, oh, you have to go through this way, and then sometimes you're gonna get through an intern. It should be more competition-based, and there are checks and balances with going through the planning department, with getting a contractor, with inspections and stuff like that. Um, so I wasn't even in on this, but that was my thoughts about it too. Yeah, I can respond to a lot of that. I, I know some, because where I, <clears throat> I guess one of the big differences when I did practice in Illinois, uh, the state of Illinois does not regulate single-family houses. However, um, virtually all the Chicago suburbs do, and and ironically, the city of Chicago when I was there did not. But good luck trying to get a plan set through the city of Chicago if you're if you're not an architect. If you don't, I mean, it's their codes are extremely complex and so forth. Um, I know some very talented, um, you know, self-taught or you know, or unlicensed uh, designers because we have most of that. That that's who a lot of my competition is in in Iowa. And when I taught, I, I taught at the community college, and I was training students mainly to be kind of you know residential designers. So I'm going to say a couple things. Um, I. I, I agree. You have a good point. It just adds, you know, it, it adds costs. I, I, I probably can't dispute that. Um, I would argue that houses are much more complex than they used to be. I mean, you used to be able to, um, you know, size, I mean, rooms used to be smaller, spans were smaller. You know, there's, there's just a houses have become more complex um so i see the need for you know design professionals we the uh the american institute of building design i, I used to go to their meetings yeah. and they had all the des moines in the suburbs about 10 municipalities uh and, and most of these guys have a certificate they have a aib they have that triangle stamp right? yeah they yeah. have a they have a certificate <laughs> They've taken a test, and it's a really good comprehensive. It's a good comprehensive test. So, and uh, they were asking the building official. Someone brought in a set of plans from an amateur, and 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 this guy checked the uh, 
this designer checked the plans. He said the beam isn't sized right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet this got a permit. And the and the building design or the uh, building official said, look, we don't. You know, we do plan checks. You know, uh, but they said you know the only you know. The, the, the homeowner is in charge of getting a building permit. They're liable for that. And if they, if they don't hire a licensed professional, it's all on them. So if they hire you, who's got 20 years of experience and is an established residential design firm, or they hire the neighbor who's taking CAD in the high school, makes no difference. The homeowner is still liable. Most people don't know that. They think the builder is oh, yeah. liable. Yeah. Is liable. And so the, the guy said the only way you could protect this is to have licensed architects design houses. And this was at the AIBD meeting, and you could have heard a pin drop in there. You know, they were all shocked. Now, I'm going to flip this a little bit because... One thing, when I taught at the community college, um, I, I, I wrestled with this. And I said, is there, I think, I, th- I really do think it would be good for residential, for single family residential to be regulated. But does it need an architect's stamp? Or can there be another tier of, you know, like, like AIBD, you know, types of, People who are more self-taught, but they they learn the codes, they take a test, and they're qualified to design it. So I came away with, you know, I I would be willing to make that concession, which would I think, because I I know if 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 architects ever lobbied for this, uh, the home NHAB, the and home the, builders the would, would fight, you know, tooth and nail. But is there a path for to let you know other designers who are I, I, I was going to say you were it was interesting when you were talking about the homeowner right yeah. um in in Michigan the big trend is like this master builder concept mm-hmm. and it really is like that person who's unlicensed who's literally buying homes renovating them doing the drawings and and flipping them themselves where I see that being a great niche for an unlicensed person you're the homeowner you're taking a risk you're the unlicensed person you're doing your own drawings you're put an addition on that house you're flipping it and then you move on to the next next property it's like that model seems like that works for me they're 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 putting everything in skin in the game they just like a design build and they're putting and they're putting that whole that whole thing together but i like the it's difficult with a client though like that touch that you have that you put on there with the client and doing that for them then i do see the value of an architect but i i I, like the master builder thing could be a way to, to create a niche for that person. To and, and I see a concession too in the idea of safety because some municipalities will say you have to get a structural engineer to review and stamp the drawings and that takes care of some of the bigger problems. Uh, whoever's designing your house should know about weatherproofing and insulation and stuff like that. But I, I think there is the point that you brought up, there's these concerns that things can happen too, but I just don't want to only look at the trees and not see the forest of we still need healthy competition to bring prices down. We still need way more houses to build. There is a lot of people that are talented in house design. And and to somehow make a law and then say, you basically have to go back to college. I know there's other paths, but back to college, be under an architect. 
I mean, it would be devastating to, to a whole bunch of people that are doing an amazing job, that are doing a great job, that have great websites, that have done hundreds of homes, that have people under them that they are teaching that are going to take over. So um, I think there's little issues that I wouldn't want to broad brush it. I'm wondering if anybody else is seeing this. Well, here's what Alex and I are seeing, specifically in Boulder, Boulder County, and Denver, where, where, where we operate a lot in is. Um, when we first started our practice, uh, uh, we we could actually design even a du up to a duplex in Denver, and we could do all the calcs ourselves, and then we could it, it could go through actually unstamped. But now, so every year, you know, every three years we have these code updates, and then the cities themselves have their own amendments, and these three these three places I'm talking about in specific are they also go through a process called site plan review. So it's sort of like a mini version of a big commercial project going through the zoning process. Jumping through all of those hoops has gotten so onerous for anybody trying to do anything. It is naturally pushing people to hire architects to get them through the process. So, like, are you guys seeing that? And that's the caveat I would add to the whole thing is, like, it seems like it's going that way anyway. Just And, like, the codes aren't going away. You look at the new 2021 IECC. Now we're talking about insulating all the way around the outside of a house, plus in the cavities. Like, it is... It is getting so complex, like you said, to, to, so to give you a, a, a pat on the back here about that point, like, I don't know if it's just, it seems like it's going to go that way naturally, sort of this, sort of this unnatural monopoly that the government has on the building process. Uh, that, that, was a, that was a lot to chew on. I, I'm, I'm split on this because um, I'm hearing myself over and over again. Um, I'm split on this because I agree with you that I think homeowners should have some flexibility to do their own thing. Uh, but I disagree that architects are make, are this driving factor into housing affordability issues. Um, I, I think we're a drop in the bucket as far as the overall cost and, and the concern complexity yes is adding some uh some affordability issues so i think maybe it's about streamlining and figuring out how to, how do we streamline things um standardize certain uh additions and things like that so it's like ready-made approvals like you know what you're gonna do to to add on a master bedroom those are the most common things is a new bathroom, a new master bedroom. How do you standardize that so that the city already has a set of plans, essentially, that a homeowner can come and say, okay, now I just need to squeeze it to be, and, and then we just attach it that way, and it's already ready, approved to some extent. Uh, I think those type of things would make, uh, make some changes. And then as an overall industry, you know, standardizing the production of homes in all the various facets that, that are happening right now of factory production. I think all of that stuff will eventually start to make a change at some point. I would agree with you. And I would actually say we're on the same train, you're on the same cars. And then I think the only thing that I would set my argue is uh, Elon Musk said, hey, the, the best part is no part. You know, if you can eliminate a part, because it has a less possibility of failure, less connections to hook up, you know, streamline, streamline, make the rocket not go boom, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I would just add on to that cart is that if we can do that, adding the other cart of, hey, it has to be an architect is, is not in line with the streamlining. You could streamline it 
if you um, use you know conventional details, frame it conventionally, and there are places where you can't do that because the addition is in a tight corner or it's a big thing, and then that where I would agree, like now you're getting very nuanced. Now you know that you're getting nuanced, you hire an architect. But for those other places where you're talking about where you can streamline it, and I know a lot of people then have a problem with the aesthetics of that. But some of our best neighborhoods were made in the 40s and 50s, and then once the trees came, everyone's like, this is the best place in the world. But if you look, the houses are all the, all the same. They just painted the door and added an addition, and now it all looks different. So going back to, like, that is that streamlined process, you know, and it just took the neighborhood some growth. It went through some puberty with a little ugly baby for a while, and then it got looking good. I agree, and I think um, a lot of the cities that uh, I've worked with, like where, where my head is gone is I've seen them, you know, they have the standard, the city standard uh, retaining wall detail and, and, you know, all these different things. Like that, I think that's where the cost savings and the uh, making it easier for homeowners to, to manage their own properties, that's where you answer that question. I don't think architects really play a role in that in that sense um, it just depends if you make it so that you have to hire an architect and there's a limited pool of it and then our demand like obviously we rather be doing big houses like it might cost on average 20 to forty-five thousand dollars to do a house and that's real money and that gets paid ahead of time you can't roll that into a loan so if yeah. you want a farmhouse you know and then all of a sudden you have to say it gets stamped and let's say the architect go okay get the plans I'll review it and stamp it that's still a couple grand coming straight out of the pocket you know literally you know inflation it's, it's not easy to make a bunch of money unless yeah is there something I don't know that I, you guys can I, tell I, me. well I'll tell you that I am I have I have a client I did a pretty good size addition onto their actually the additions three times the size of the house it was wow. a small house but uh, they were able to roll their my fee into their construction loan which is great so I'm, I'm actually yeah. trying to form a relationship with that banker so I could you know you know use that as a way to uh, as part of my sales process to say you know you're gonna pay a lot for my fee but you can roll it into a construction loan now that might I know be the most useful knowledge of this whole podcast <laughs> that that's a possibility yeah now however they're always at risk, and if they don't build, they don't get a construction loan. So you know, then they're they're on the you know they're basically you know having to to you know do architects fees. I, I one of the things Lance was saying, and I mean he was talking about the cost of the average cost of a house, and I don't know if he was just talking about the sales price of a house or the construction cost. Construction of a house. cost U.S. Um, I would I would also say that. I mean that factors in probably the what ninety plus percent that's speculative housing, which um, even if and and uh, ironically a lot of the big major builders do use licensed architects, yeah. um, you know, and that so they are already that fee is absorbed into their price. They're not those architects are not making five percent per unit. I mean they're not making anything like that they're doing you know repetitive designs and all that but you know the the thing is um uh and and uh, this is just a little tidbit of information um there used to be a magazine called residential architect um and uh it was published by hanley wood 
And the second issue uh, was an architect named Jack Bloodgood, and he was from Des Moines, Iowa, and this is before I came to Des Moines. Jack worked for uh, Better Homes and Gardens in Meredith, and uh, Meredith Publishing, and he started his own firm in Des Moines and became like a national architect for doing basically production housing. And he showed the difference in, you know, houses before architects, you know, particularly the, the post-war where, you know, where you get, you know, kind of a split-level hodgepodge. There's really no style to a house. And what he was able to do as an architect to, you know, to affect spec housing. And, you know, it was dramatic. And I have, a, I have a, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. Now, you can't, reg- that, you can't really regulate that. You can't regulate taste or anything you know we wish i think as architects we wish we could but we you know we we can't but we'd never be able to agree on what taste was yeah yeah. and and one of the biggest misconceptions i think with the planning and building zoning codes is i hear from the public they think that that's what they're doing but i get the comments back and they're about my line weight they're not about what i designed they're about where the sewer is you know so um yeah, I think the public thinks that that's what they're doing, but like you said, because it's so hard to do it, they don't really touch that. I mean, we were talking about historic, historically what happened. I mean, you used to be able to buy a, a house from sales and robots, right? It's like, you're talking about you know, affordable, you just picked it out in the catalog and said, this is the, the house that I want. I mean, they're trying to do that with, with uh, prefab houses and different things like that, but it, it you know, it, it's... We're, 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 we're repeating ourselves so, with history, right? I'm going to tell you a little funny, little two, two bits about Sears, because we're from Chicago. We're in Chicago, and Sears is Chicago institution. Um, they, did have, they did have architects on their staff. They, I, they were probably not licensed architects, but they were what I would call common law architects at the time. And you'd buy this kit. You'd buy the whole thing would be shipped to your house. And after about 10 years, Sears realized that so many homeowners were buying these things and couldn't assemble their houses that they finally had to say hey we will not sell to you unless you get one of our certified contractors um so it 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 everyone thinks of this the whole sears program and the and the whole catalog program as you know these people just you know do it yourself we're going to build our they were comp yeah they were just as complex as any house and they required the expertise of a seasoned builder, you know, not, I'm not saying licensed or anything like that, but they did require, you know, that, and Sears finally had to certify builders, um, you know, to, as, as part of their program. So just, I just wanted to dispel a couple, the two rumors that they, you know, that they didn't have architects and they, and they were just these do-it-yourself projects. This this is a fascinating conversation, but we've come to the point where we've got to rotate some oh, right, uh, yes. some guests here again. So Sandra, thank you very much it for was spending a pleasure. this time. Great meeting everyone. Nice to meet you. Uh, so yeah, the dot com, and that's spelled N O I R Design D I S I G N dot com, and we're online. We're on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter and Instagram. NoirDesignParty.com. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? 
But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses, and automates them with features like the digital bills and a receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running, and the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, a.k.a. CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Artcat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's artcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T, dot com slash podcast detailed every building has a story please visit our sponsors today and thank them thank them for supporting you the entree architect community coming in getting her set up is someone that uh if you're out there on instagram if you're out there on the socials as they say our next guest is known as Renewable Farah. Hello, thank you for having me. So tell us about yourself, what do you do? So my name is Farah Naz Kadir and I'm a public sector architect with the New York City School Construction Authority, formerly a energy code plans examiner with the City of New York, so I come here with a, a ton of government experience and from that angle. And, and your handle on uh, Instagram and I assume other places is Renewable Farah. Correct, and uh, Twitter is Farah underscore A-R-C-H, and I share a lot of information on energy code, uh, green building technical standards, so uh, attempting to share a lot of resources, so feel free to connect. Uh, public buildings only, or residential, or? I've done, uh, as an energy code plans examiner, I've done a review on both residential and commercial, and I'm currently involved on the National Green Building Standard Code Committee. So we are looking at residential homes and changing up the standards for those, uh, and currently public schools, so commercial projects. Nice. Uh, I really like that the new code has an option for continuous only installation, because then you can do a perfect wall system. Uh, that is which, correct. Which is pretty awesome. 
Yes, it's it's the only way that we can drive up manufacturers to, to make more high-performance products because code is, I think, one of the few means of enforcement in this country. So is, is, it, the, uh, is it the catalyst of innovation? Is that, is that what we're down to, that code's the only thing that drives innovation? <laughs> there are a lot of, you know, it's a lot of interplay. You have a lot of green building certification programs that are coming out there, but they... Are, are, are they are resulting from the minimum baseline codes. I think that uh, once a lot of manufacturers and uh, tenants start to see the value of those green building certification programs, that's going to drive the industry and the design professionals to advocate for the codes to become more high performing. It's, it's a collaboration between the private sector and the public sector. The designers have to speak up and advocate for it. They have to understand that their clients want the high performance but that's only going to happen when we see a lot more visibility of green building products and certified buildings out there. And that in itself stems from educating the public on, on what's considered innovative so we can drive up market value and then in turn drive up the codes and the policy. And that's our role as architects is to continue to advocate for that. Uh, that was actually what I was going to ask. Is it's, I think there's a lot of chicken and egg here going yeah. on. But, but what's so the role of the architect, what do you think is the best thing 10,000 architects walking around the uh, the expo floor and the, the conference here. What's the one thing that somebody needs to do to kind of inspire this in, this innovation that you're talking about? Get involved in their local governments and, and give their insight to their local buildings department about the issues that clients are having and understanding design and what they're looking for. And design professionals need to become, in turn, more educated so that they can let their clients know what's available on the market and so that clients you know, there's maybe non-technical professionals understand what's available to them. The biggest gap is not understanding what products are out on the market and what services architects can deliver. So if architects can provide that knowledge to the public, the public will know what to ask for. It comes from understanding what's available. All right, before we move into that, we have another guest. This guest is coming in online. Farah's gonna stay. Ed's gonna head out. Ed, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for linking in with us. Sharice, I don't remember where you are in the world. Are you still home? It looks like you're still home. I Yeah, Portland. Portland, Oregon. Yes. I have not, yes, I don't fly out till tonight. Okay. So Sharice is the host uh, the Detail Podcast by RCAT. Uh, Sharice, you want to give us a quick uh, summary of the show and, and some insight into what you're, the conversation you're having? Uh, sure. Now I know what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> well, before before we do that, actually, let's okay. take a step back and just give us a, a quick little short bio. Uh, my name is Sharice Lakeside. I am the senior spec writer for RDH Building Science. Spent about 30 years working in architecture, engineering, and construction, which I think has given me kind of a unique lens. I'm super involved in CSI. I'm a fellow. Um, and I do a lot of public speaking and now I do the detailed podcast. Uh, there, there's the short version and I love to have fun and travel and have crazy adventures. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you want to dig in and share a little bit about detailed? Uh, sure. Uh, I have to admit that I was a little surprised when I got the call asking if I would consider hosting the podcast. I'm like, are you guys sure you're calling the right girl? Um, be, and, and one of my reasons for that was 
you know, if, if I'm going to do this, I want to be able to have real conversations that people are going to learn from every single time I talk to a guest. And everybody was on the same page, and all of a sudden here I am doing this, this thing. Um, but the, kind of the premise, it, at least from my perspective for this pod, podcast, is to talk about all these great buildings out there that are being designed or being built or have been built, but not just talk about, there's lots of podcasts that talk about this great building and these things on this great building. Uh, but we wanted to kind of take the path of, tell me how it went. Yeah. What, what went right? What went wrong? What did you learn? I like to call them challenges, not mistakes, because I think every new building that we work on is a new experience and a new learning curve. Um, but I wanted to talk about the things that were challenges and how they how they approached those challenges and how they got to where they wanted to be or how they did fix something that was a mistake or any of those kinds of things. With the, my, my driving hope is that anybody who listens to the podcast is going to run from their desk or from the podcast when, once they listen to it to their desk and change something they're doing that day. Um, so... Yeah. In, in the process, and we also learn about great products that are being used. We've talked about some. I've I've learned so much since hosting this. It's like crazy. I've been around a long time, and I'm I'm sitting there almost every episode going, "Wow, I didn't know that." Um, and and so we talk about great products people are using and unique products that people are using to solve a problem on a building. One example was one episode. It was for a building here in Portland. That building is in a place in Portland where there are a lot of protests um, when things are not going great politically. And they didn't want the building to be dark, but they didn't want to be replaced windows all the time if there was a protest coming down the street and people, somebody threw a brick through a window. And we found this great window film, or we found, I didn't find anything, the team... <laughs> The team found this great window film that you could put on the film. You could still completely see through the window and it didn't affect vision at all. But you could throw, literally throw a brick at the window and it wasn't gonna break. And they didn't believe it when they heard about it. So they made the company that made this window film actually take them out to the to a thing, put this window film on a window and then they threw bricks at, bricks at it and the windows didn't break. Yeah. I had never heard of this before. so. We talk about a lot of things like that, but with the hope that people will learn things they can use and will get out of our boxes. Um, we, we like to work in silos in this industry and we're pretty resistant to change, which is absolutely not anything that I'm about. I mean, I don't believe in change for change's sake, but we could always be improving. And, and by having more conversations with different people on the project team and sharing this information, I think we can break down some of those walls. Yeah. And you had a great episode that just came out today on uh, high performance buildings. So fair. I think you would love that one. That was a, a really good conversation where um, you guys dig into the high performance wall systems. Do you recall any of it uh, that you would want to kind of touch on? Oh, no, um, you're killing Trace? me here, Demetrius. <laughs> I am so, as you know, and I know that you have... Um, very gently encouraged me not to do this. But as you know, I don't listen to my podcasts. 
Um, I listened to episode one and I have not listened to any of the other ones. And I, I plan to change that, but you know how it is. We don't like the sound. Nobody likes the sound of their own voice. And I listen yeah. to it and, and I just pick myself to pieces. It's, it's really like this horrible self-confidence thing because everything sounds terrible to me. And I'm so hyper-focused on my guest in the conversation that yeah. I, I'm not sure I can speak to that except for that Jake is, um, Jake Lamana from Walsh Construction is who I interviewed for that podcast. And he's a very, also a very good friend of mine, also fr from here in Portland. All my guests are not from Portland, but I have dragged in a few friends. Jake, yeah. thinks, he's my, Jake thinks he's my dad. Um, <laughs> But he's just just one of the smartest guys I know and had a lot to share about the PAE living building here in Portland and, you know, some of the things that went into putting that together and what their goals were. And I encourage you to listen because I don't yeah. remember any stats right now. You have me on yeah. the spot. So, uh, Farrah, have you heard of that building? It's the PAE, PAE living building in Portland. Um, so this building was actually designed to uh, stand for 500 years uh, is what their their um, goal was with this building. And it's a high performance building. Uh, they retain like crazy amount of water on site and uh, utilize that water. They have solar panels. Um, it's just like a fully functioning, self-sustaining building. Um, so if, if you're into that sort of thing, if you're listening to that, it's a great episode to listen to. But uh, they talked about a lot about the, uh, the high performance walls uh, to your to your point about some of the code changes that are happening to go in that direction. Um, you want to share a little bit of your thought of the industry moving that direction of high performance buildings and, and sort of that mindset for our industry? Yeah, so there's a lot going on, and we've seen some of that on the expo floor. Um, but we have to continue to advocate for emissions reductions. And obviously, the buzzwords uh, in the last few years that we were seeing in jurisdictions is net zero and carbon emissions. And the codes are all trending towards that. We have to continue to advocate for those high-performance standards. So we've seen lead, lead, we've seen passive house coming to play, we've seen passive house level standards coming into code as well. So it's really promising. Uh, the performance-based methodology of of hitting these energy targets is what's really important because we're not honing in on just one building system, but we're looking at the building performance as a whole. Yeah. And so that means that architects are going to continue and engineers are going to be working together to look at all different aspects of a building. So we're not going to be tacking on technology as a solution, but we can we can look at occupant building use. Uh, occupant education on reducing emissions first and then integrating the technology after the emissions has been reduced. So it's kind of an integrative solution and it's interesting to see how that has been evolving in the last decade. Yeah, I've seen uh, LEED kind of be scoffed at <laughs> um, and Passive House and Living Building Challenge kind of um, sort of rising to the top. Are you seeing that in conversations or where do you fall as far as what would be the preferred method or all of them? Or yeah, it's an interesting question and a controversial one. You know, I don't want to pit one program against another. I will say that USGBC has been very instrumental in in getting people on board with sustainability and those outside of the industry marketing the this concept so that others can understand or start to understand what green buildings are really about. 
uh, and just basically creating that importance around it and getting a ton of countries involved under one umbrella branch. And then what a lot of these other programs are doing is really monitoring the performance of a building after occupancy so that we can see what actual consumption is like and whether it's hit the targets that it was intended to be designed for. So there's different strengths and weaknesses. I think um, it's important to just, you know, if a, if a building owner can get on board with one certification program and start to understand the process, then they'll have the tools to understand what the other programs are about as well. And then maybe they can try and get multiple certifications and that's not going to harm anyone. But if they can just take that first step to, to get some certification, then they already have their foot in the door and that'll be a huge, huge uh, accomplishment. Yeah. One of the, in the episode that just came out, Charisse, uh, we also had conversations with the architect and the project manager of uh, who was occupying the building. And one other element about this whole approach that they, that he highlighted kind of, is that this elevates the quality of living within that space as well. And he talked about as a, as a business owner, trying to get his employees back into the office having this high quality high quality design space helped in his effort of trying to get people to come back in because they really enjoy the space and the people that are willing to come back to the office um, re I really appreciate the way that it's designed the quality of, of the space the timber exposed timber um, well ventilated spaces they did uh, radiant floor heating so it's very comfortable um, very efficient space so that's another thing that people don't really talk about is that quality of living that gets elevated when you do approach these this this type of design. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think you know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say one of the things that I'm really enjoying about working at RDH is you know I'm jumping off this bridge into a new discipline again and and working in building science. So I'm I am totally learning. <laughs> no expert here, but. Um, that's all they're about is making a good, tight, energy efficient, um, quality building. And this is, you know, I've worked in architecture most of my career and I'm not saying that the, the quality of the building isn't important on every project I've worked on, but there's a, a kind of a different focus on that in, in a building enclosure firm and okay. that it's huge, it huge. They, it's, they go to such great lengths to make that building the best that it can possibly be, you know, within the parameters, obviously, of the budget and scope for the client. And it, it's so refreshing to get to focus on quality as much as I get to focus on quality now. Um, and, and it's not always about the dollars. Um, from our perspective, and I, I love that. I love that there's a, a huge bend towards making these better, more sustainable um, buildings, and, and we focus on that all the time. So, you know, I'm still learning, and there's a lot to learn, uh, but but it's it's nice to be able to kind of hyper-focus into one, one area like that and really try to achieve those great buildings. Yeah. Uh, but Lance, one of the things that, that you talk about uh, bringing um, maybe architects not being required, I think you're talking about more just for single family. 100%. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, because we were just talking about architects being advocates for uh, 
moving the industry forward as far as um, high performance design, uh, some of these different things that we're trying to implement. So I just wanted to clarify that's 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 where you were going was just the single family, right? Oh yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think um, Joe Schmo, who my neighbor, that's my neighbor. He should be doing. He should be. Doing, he should be doing a skyscraper. Uh, well, even if it's not Joe Schmo, but do you think architects could be removed out of uh, designing commercial buildings, and it's a experienced builder? In Colorado, actually, you can do uh, an, a type I building up to ten thousand square feet, and then in some jurisdictions, you can even do tenant finishes under like 3,000 square feet, um, depending on who you are and where the life safety is and everything like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think there should be as much competition within reason that we can for almost everything because competition breeds um, the best out of, out of all situations. It breeds the best kind of buildings or the best product and the best prices and the most affordability for people because we have all kinds of choices. I just don't like to limit choices within reason. Do you do you think that sort of removes a, per, uh, a a group from moving the conversation forward for an industry? Well, let me ask you this: Is your premise that only architects are are pushing the envelope in terms of performance? No. No. Okay. Then, if your premise isn't that, because that's what uh, the vibe I was getting, right? Because I have many stories where. Look, a client will come to me and they will push the envelope. So it's yeah. not even a design professional. It's a somebody coming to me, especially in the area we operate in, Boulder County specifically. Um, it's a very progressive area um, in terms of politics. And, and, and then it's also the second most educated county in the United States. Second only to um, the county that MIT, Brown, um, and Harvard reside in, in Boston. So you have very wealthy, highly educated, progressive people coming in that are earth conscious and want to do the morally right thing, they're the ones pressing, I see, more than architects. It's not architects yeah. saying, we're gonna, we're, we want you to do the high-performance building that's net positive. It's actually, I'm seeing the opposite. Yeah, no, and I completely get that. I think where I'm going, I'm trying to pull out who is the, who is the group that's gonna drive us forward. Is it architects? Is it another organization like USGBC? Is it... Is it, who is that that's going to really push us forward and how do we sort of um, support them to really help us all move forward? Because if it's architects, we need to change how we do things dr dramatically in order to, to move our industry forward and to all be thinking that way and not some just doing it and others just, you know, getting by. Is it, are you talking about like energy and like sustainability and, and is that what we're uh, pointed at I mean, here? I think that's one element, but I think it's a bigger picture as well. Okay. Like, what other things besides sustainability would you include in that bigger picture? Affordability, we talked about okay. a little bit earlier. Uh, energy is another thing. Um, the access to, uh, beyond just affordability, the access to the general public, I think, is an element that needs to be addressed as well. Like, how do we start to, to move all of these things forward? And I feel like architects not leading that, um, who then steps in? Like, how do we assign, how do we get someone to sort of move all of these things whoever, forward? Whoever, whoever wants to and, make a, and can make a profit in it 
with uh-huh. it in a free market, as free as we can get. That, yeah. That's who's going to do it. And I, I actually don't care who it is. Yeah. As long as that that framework is there of the freest market we can have with the most competition and people are still able to make a profit so that they can continue to replicate what they just did successfully to make it happen. It could be Elon Musk for all I care. <laughs> yeah. I think you also just need to create a demand for it and conventions like this, the AIA conference, we need to open this up to the public. We need to get them on board so that they can understand what technologies are available and they can speak to the technical professionals themselves and ask the questions that they need to. That information isn't readily available. You know, a lot of times a client will go to an architect and ask them or not even know what an architect can do for them. And, you know, they, they just see the markets, the, the pretty mar- the pretty products out on the shelves, but they don't know the technical specs behind it, right? So if we can open up things like this to the public, I was a participant of the Solar Decathlon when I was in school years ago, and that was a walking exhibition of energy-efficient homes, and the public could walk in and see what was available to them. And I think when you start to understand what's out there, and you understand the implications of it for sustainability, you create that demand. And then architects in turn are going to hopefully push for that in, in the codes and the standards because they see that there's a need for it. And both the design professional and the public understand the cost savings, the energy savings, the, the good for the planet. So it, it, it's two ways. Really. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest places that we lack as a building industry is that marketing element. Because uh, we talk a lot to each other, but we're not going to the general public. How do we break down... Uh, the arc you speak, as they say, uh, or our industry language, so that it's more um, digestible to the public, so that you start to build that demand and have them inquire, like, why do I need to do this? And, uh, and build demand and interest. And then to your point, uh, Lance, a business will follow to fill, fill those voids and provide that service. I think we don't have the audience for it to create that demand and those businesses to to target all these things that need to be addressed because no one knows that they need to be addressed. It's like the, the iPhone everybody references. No one knew we needed an iPhone, but it was made and, and now everybody buys it. I don't know about that. I mean, honestly, it, even when it comes down to the iPhone, I knew I wanted an iPhone. I mean, I was a Star Trek fan since forever, and I was like, when are, when are the tricorders coming out? And to me, this is basically a tricorder, especially if you hike in the woods like me. Like, That's if you, more if powerful you, than a tricorder. There you go. If you download <laughs> if you download an All Trails app, you can track yourself. I mean, even with no service and stuff like that, the audience is there. I, I don't think it's an audience issue. Demetrius, you should give yourself more credit. You have a podcast that is basically free to everybody if they have if they have access to a phone you are telling people what architects do all the time adam over there is telling what architects do all the time mark is telling what architects do all the time i'm telling what architects do all the time i think we're doing our job to the best of our abilities and, and getting it out there um maybe maybe more needs to happen than that about what an architect does you know like i, I this is one of my complaints and i know we're sitting here at the AA all day long but like <laughs> Why is it? Why? Why am I having to describe to the general public what an architect does? Like, shouldn't the AIA be doing part of this? I mean, well, I think. Hey, don't so, get me started. <laughs> so I, I think there's ultimately a disconnect because you know, I'm, I'm going to ignore the the last question, and, and not because I don't think it's a, a legitimate question, but I think the the thirty thousand foot view is. We talk about what architects do all the time. We describe, we, we do a lot of saying, 
and sometimes we show, but you know, in marketing 101, we have to show, not say. And when we look at examples out there that we love, we love to malign things like HGTV. Sorry, I said it. <laughs> we love to malign things like like HGTV because it's not realistic, you know, blah 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 blah. But where are people consuming the information? It's HGTV and yeah. the like. So how do we flip that around and turn it into a realistic conversation? about architecture about the results of architecture etc and we the the thing that always has and may always hold us back is we love to talk with each other yeah without relating to you know going going back to your your point five minutes ago or you know however long we've been talking about this about the demand right and in the in the market and you, you've got to have a, a market for that. You've got to have the consumer-driven demand. We don't seem to be interested in driving that demand. We seem to be interested in talking about what we think is important. In the words that we like to use, going back to the Arca-speak idea, or, or uh, jargon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> and, and, and it's on some level, and, and these are broad sweeping generalizations, of course, but on some level, completely ignoring the marketplace. Yeah. And you know, going back to where you started, Farah, it's you, if we want things to change, right? Architects are not going to change it. The the one person, whether it's the developer or the builder or the, the whatever, the one person's not going to change it. We we've got to find the tide to ride. And it, and I think. It's got to start, we, we talk about education all the time, but we want to educate here. Yeah. And the people that need to be educated are not here. Yeah. And many of them aren't interested, whether they're not interested or don't even know that it's there, right? It's, it's out, out of their stratosphere somewhere. We're not relating at the same level. We're not speaking the same language. And we've got, in my opinion, let's go around and look at, at other other industries. You know, this is one of the things I ask all my students, first night of class, every semester, look around you right now and tell me one thing that hasn't changed in your lifetime. And so, you know, they're, they're all masters of architecture students, so they're like, I don't know, 25 years old or something. So what hasn't changed? What have you not seen change in 25 years? And the answer is nothing. <laughs> What about architecture? What about the profession of architecture? What about the way that we're talking about it? There's that's that's one of the big disconnects. I think is we we love to have this insular place for us, and, and I love the idea of opening this up because this is that insular place where there's the products and there's all these things, and we're not inviting them into a conversation exactly where they where they want to. Where they want to engage, and, and I think that's there's a million reasons right, that it's not happening. But that's, that's one thing that's got to change, I think. Yeah. And I think that's what drive that would drive the innovation is bridging that gap between HGTV and kind of what we're doing now is how do we how do we make that connection something that's palatable but more elevated so that you spur the audience is there. HGTV is proof that yeah. the audience is there, but now you need to convert that audience 
into demand for better. And how do we do that? I think that's where the, the question really is, well, in I, my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. It's tough. It's tough because I'm guilty. I was on HGTV and <laughs> they wanted us to create all kinds of drama. And we, me and Al like refused. And the only thing that Al did was he cut the tape, uh, the measuring tape, and then it was funny and stuff like that. And what I'm go- where I'm going with this is, is like, even the HGTV, it, be, it would be cool if, it, like, Mike Rowe does a good job about explaining dirty jobs and getting people to, like, appreciate yeah, yeah, yeah. those, right? Just, yeah. like, appreciate the mundane stuff. So maybe it's, maybe it's up to somebody like Mike Rowe or something like that to break through. But then you have this problem of, like, the TV stations that they just want drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you gotta find. <laughs> it's so weird, right? Because there's so, in my romanticized view of this, right? There's yeah. got to be some middle ground between the entertainment, which is some large percentage of what HGTV is, and that's why there's an audience, etc. And the reality, and we we know reality TV is not real. So, but but how do we find the place that's entertaining enough to attract people but also impactful enough and and real enough um you know i i i think i've got enough faith in the public that if if they saw something if they came here to the to a22 or next year san francisco right a23 if they walked through the expo floor and, and saw something some product some technology whatever and somebody did a really great job of explaining to them, telling the story, getting them hooked on the story about how this would make their life better through their home or their business or you know whatever the context is. Yeah. I have enough faith that somebody, enough people could see that and say, yeah, I want that. And they go back to Boulder, or Boulder mm-hmm. County, and say, you know guys, we were just at this this expo in San Francisco and we saw these purple lasers that did this, that, and the other. And we think that could really transform our lives. We want that. And you would probably say, yeah, we can incorporate that in our designs to help you change, you know, help make your life better. There, there's, it's there somewhere. But I, it's, it feels to me like we swing and miss all the time. Yeah, it's like there's a disconnect. Yeah. It's like the shipping container problem, right? Yeah. Everybody sees these shipping containers and these buildings, you know, houses or maybe commercial ones or whatever, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to save so much money. I'm like... <laughs> Kinda, like not really, and then you start to get into the weeds. So they're almost, they're almost there, you know. Yeah. They're almost there, and they're they understand. And then there was even the sustainability component comes in with the shipping containers because they're like we're reusing materials. We're, you know, there's less impact on. The, we're not having to mine more mountains and stuff. But that it's just so close, but so far away. I think there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to bridge it either. I wish I knew. Maybe we'll come up with an idea. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know... Opening we, it up is really a brilliant idea. That was yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I, th- I think architects are the middleman, right? Because the public knows to go to either a, a contractor or an architect. That <laughs> the architect needs to do a better job of not just glamorizing this high-end residential architecture, but talking about the, the technical brilliance, about the, the makings of the, the systems. And that education for the tenants, I just don't think is there. Mm-hmm. It's an issue on the, the building owner's part where they're not maybe taking the initiative to improve their buildings and it's just a, a band-aid solution for quick quick fixes. Um, but to really understand how their building operates and and understanding the commissioning process where, again, that tenant education on using the building once it's built sustainably or to retain and 
retain sustainable building operations even if the building itself isn't great. That education just has to be there, and I, I really think the architect is the middleman. So we have to do a better job as designers and and as the that, that middleman. Yeah. You know, the positive thing, like we were saying earlier on the podcast, and Mark was talking about it, that he didn't, like 25 years ago when he started this whole thing and he was involved with the AIA, he did not, we did not really hear about business in architecture. Now we're hearing business in architecture. So maybe once we get that under the belt, then that component could be focused on next and that would kind of be one of the final evolutions to make it happen. Connecting with the public. I definitely agree that's like an amazing idea because you have those, um, you know, those those fairs where, you know, they have the hot tubs and the different home products around. If you infused a little bit of that and just changed your uh, pitch to what this event is, I think you could successfully get a bunch of homeowners to walk the floor. I don't see why that would be that difficult. And then you have a few presentations that are targeted towards a homeowner, a someone that you know owns office buildings. You can start to work some of this stuff in, and it would not be that difficult. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the trade shows that you see out now in the industry, they're all for manufacturers or for design professionals, right? We don't really mm-hmm. see. And again, I revert back to the example of the Solar Decathlon, which is open up to hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. And that has been so effective. The, the public has taken a, a look at those homes and seen as, as an entire building which technologies or systems are working together to create those, that performance. I, I think it would be so effective. I think it's the way that we sell the... I don't want to use the word sell, but tell people. Use the word sell. Sell. Use the word sell. Sell. The way we sell the, the fair, right? How we market it and, and divide it into categories that people can understand. So when when the public goes through the uh, the, the solar decathlon and they see all these things, what is it? What are they latching onto? Right? If if what's your neighbor's name? Joe, Joe Schmo. Joe Schmo. <laughs> <laughs> so when when Joe Schmo goes to the solar decathlon, what is what is his biggest takeaway? Why is he inspired? You know what is what is he getting out of going through the solar decathlon? As yeah. an example, I think the average Joe Smo is looking to retain their or increase their market value of their home yep. and uh, be an example for their neighbors. So of course you have that percentage of people that want to do good, want to do right by the environment, and are conscious. Um, they're looking for ways to save on their utility bills, and that's the economic incentive is what we have to drive up. We have to really demystify that that misconception of, oh my God, it costs so much up front. But present the numbers on the long-term savings and make the information readily available. But yeah, I think the average person wants to, needs to see the numbers of how their market values are going to increase and they need to understand the the trends of where the the codes are going and what manufacturers are looking to do in the future because they want to be cutting edge, they want to be on top of their game. And I think a lot of people still don't understand like, Even if you've got a rack of solar panels on your home, that market value does go up quite a bit. And with the with the increase of availability of that product and where it's going in the next ten years, and the cost being driven down, the market value is going to increase even more. There's a um, I'm I'm glad you described it that way because it's a nice segue. Um, There's there's a uh, there's a marketing adage that's really important for architects especially to understand but it's sell people what they want 
and give them what they need. And if we think about the conversations that go on in architecture circles a lot, what do we talk about? We talk about what you need. You know, this code, this, that, and the other. And people don't want to pay money for that. Right. And that's this this getting into into psychology of the marketing and the selling and everything else. So what is it that they want? You said, well, Joe Schmo wants to raise his his uh, uh, his, his value, uh, lower his bills, and things like that. Okay, great. Let's sell that. Let's sell. Hey, we can do this, and then we have to we have to bring that other stuff in. Probably the how you do it. Maybe it's the PV. Maybe it's Whatever, whatever the products are, but I, I think that's one of the big things we've got to stop doing because architects love, you know, every, every I know I'm walking out into the bed of coals at this point, but everything from, oh, architects are valuable because of the license, because it's required, because you need, that's, that's a really hard sell because I may need that, but it doesn't, want to, doesn't mean I want to pay money for that. Well, you might want to hire an architect because you can accomplish these things that you said you wanted. Okay, well, that those are things that I value. So it's flipping it around and selling people what they need, or selling people what they want and then giving them what they need. And it's it's just mindset. Yeah, if the if the mindset changed to where they thought of us as the easy button, meaning yeah, yeah, that's right, true. yeah, you know where yeah, yeah. where they said one of the pitching points that we always say is I tell people I want to take the government off your back. I am going to be the one between you and the government, and I will handle all the comments. I will make that easy for you, and I will also reduce all of these ideas that you have in your head down to simplified solutions that you can pick from. Yeah. You know that that sort of that sort of thought process, and then it leads down to the bills, like you're talking about, where you're like, yeah, we'll we'll cost a more upfront, but like we're going to save you money at the end of the day um, with your utility bills and all of those yeah. things. So I I always say, as an architect, you have one job. That's to make your client's life better. Yeah. Period. And, you know that that means different things in different contexts, of course. You know, you just you just gave a great a great example, right? The, the context in making the life better maybe the uh, all of the, the inspections and all, all the government things you were talking about, or it may be. Um, I mean, we're I I've, I've got to rush home tonight to get on a flight because we're going on vacation tomorrow. One of the things that we're going to do while on vacation. Um, Maybe there'll be a day that it rains, and, and my wife and I will sit and hash through some decisions on a kitchen renovation that we're going to do, at, you know, at home. And even someone that's trained, you know, that worked in in firms for twenty whatever years and and knows how these things go, there's still a lot of decision making. There's a lot of stuff out there that has to be wrangled, and so you know that's. Going back to your, your example, that's another way that you can make a client's life better by taking a lot of that off of their plate. And so it means different things to different people, but um, in, until we get to the point where we're intensely focused on my job is to make this client's life better, there's going to be a lot of clients that are struggling to see the value of what we do. What do you do? Yeah, I, I sort of put that blame on architects as well. There's like such a just such a comfort with the same high-end luxury residential and commercial glam, and it's the designers that aren't telling or doing their proper research for their clients to customize a solution that maybe first and foremost is good for the environment or can actually save them money. 
and there's sort of a greed and a profit motive as well behind it. So I would blame the profession as well for that. Like if their percentage, like if their contract is percentage-wise and they're driving up the budget, is that the brass tax of what you just said? I think, I think they're sometimes offering services and products that might not be in the client's oh. best interest. Whether that's cost savings or something that's going to be more durable and sustainable in long term. Maybe because they've, they're getting commission to, to advertise or, I'm not saying every architect's doing this, but to, maybe they have a comfort or familiarity with certain products that they've used yeah. in projects from time to time. They haven't taken the time to refine that. And that's their easy button. Yes. Yeah, so they're not doing the extra light work. Yeah, yeah, that could be 100% for sure. Are, are we still, we're still using the term triple bottom line? <laughs> I haven't heard for a while, but go ahead. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's just, that concept that you know it's there's there's obviously the profit piece of it but there's there's what is it profit planet and people people mm. and I, I always thought and that's one of the reasons I asked the question I mean are people still using that mm. but I always thought that concept was a really healthy concept you know it gets into okay is this the right product for these other reasons you know for the people for the planet for the profit and in each one of those each one of those P's is a legitimate, a necessary consideration. We, we need to make a profit. We need to take care of the planet. We need to, to take care of the people and provide you know, healthy working spaces and living spaces and all those. Um, so, you know, I would, I would like more conversations about that because you can actually, hey, I'm, I'm a developer, great. You know, are you making, are you making a profit? Are you taking care of your clients? Are you, you know, all of these things? Are you making the right decisions on this level, this level, and this level? But I don't hear talk about that much anymore. Hmm. It's a tough puzzle because we're trying to figure out who, who can, who can really bring sustainability forward if we're going in, in, in that lens. Yeah. It's, it's everyone has to participate. Thank you for coming by. Thank you very much. Yeah, nice you to meet you. Thank by. you. Great conversation. You. Thank you, Renewable Farah. Tell us, tell us, Adam Steiner, welcome, welcome to the show. Tell us who you are, what you do. I am Adam Steiner. I run my own home design firm. Um, I snuck into the architects convention here because I am not an architect. Um, so we could talk about that if you want to. Um, but I also do a podcast called Builder versus Buyer, um, really mediating the relationship between builders and buyers and trying to educate both sides in the construction process. So there you go. And you're a TikTok star. <laughs> I don't know about star, but I'm a TikToker. Yeah, for sure. And to my left, yeah. there's a there's a stack over there that says hashtag flat architect, and the guy that is uh, that's hold, now holding the flat architects, it's Bill. Hi, Bill. Yes. Hey. Who are you? How are you? I'm well. I am William J. Martin. I am very active on social media. I run a small architectural practice in a five-state area in the Northeast. Move it. And I do. Uh, Sustainable design, high performance design, mostly residential. I do also do some commercial. I used to do big buildings in a former life, and now I'm really focused on uh, sustainability in terms of much smaller buildings. So that's what I'm about. But I'm also the, the uh, co uh, chairperson of the AI New Jersey Public Awareness Committee. So I'm here doing social media on behalf of AI New Jersey as part of the uh, A22. So are most architects in New Jersey flat? Uh, no, these are flat. These are, are some of our members that uh, could not attend. 
So uh, I made them flat so that, oh. I could, so that I could bring them with me and they could attend. It's like so flat Stanley. It's just like flat Stanley, except it's flat architect. And these are AI New Jersey members. And uh, they have been very active yeah. over the last few days on the <laughs> flat architect Instagram. They're very handsome and beautiful. Yes, well, we try to make our flat people look good. Yeah. So, so while Adam is a TikTok star, the Flat Architects are Instagram stars. They actually have their own Instagram uh, account. Yeah. Oh, serious? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. serious. Yeah, we're, we're Instagramming. It started two years ago before the pandemic with Grassroots. We had a Flat Architect attend Grassroots. And it was so much fun to do it. And then the pandemic hit. Because you can't do flat architect remotely. I'm not going to set up a Zoom camera with a flat architect. <laughs> that's next level. Yeah. We, we thought about it, but I said, that's a little too much. So uh, it was. I was so excited to come here and actually see you, you know, see everyone yeah. and yeah, interact and, and hug people. And it's like, I didn't realize how much I really wanted that, you know? I mean, it's... It's the, humanity. Yeah. It's, it's just a, humanity. It's a once in a hundred year event that really changed everything not just architecture it changed how people enter it changed everything yeah so anyway so, uh, so who are who are these flat architects that you have this is andrew andrew and andrew is actually here okay andrew thompson andrew thompson yes. is here and flat yes he's here and flat and the funny part of it is when he sees me doing this he'll sneak up behind <laughs> in the photos and i tell people one of these three I just gave out the, uh, the secret, is actually here. Brian Henschow could not make it. Brian will be our Air New Jersey president next year. And uh, Ruchi Dar is uh, another one of our members who volunteered. Actually, she trusts me. She volunteered to be flat and be at the, uh, at, at the A22. So it's been a lot of fun to do this. So they've been going to dinners. They've been going to... The beer garden, they've been going to booths, they've been meeting people as if they were here, except they are flat. <laughs> Wait, there's a beer garden? Well, the Navy Pier, yeah. We, we, we had a meetup last night on, on uh, Navy Pier. Um, so we were, we were going to run from 8 to 10 at the beer garden on Navy Pier. And then there's also a, uh, a rooftop restaurant and bar. And so the plan was, we meet here from 8 to 10, when things close down, if there are enough people that want to stick around, we'll go upstairs to the, uh, the rooftop bar. And the, the beer garden was not exactly what we expected. And then one side of it closed down about 9.20, and another side of it closed down about 9.40. And Mark went upstairs to, to see, well, you know, we need to we need to move upstairs. So, um, you know, he was going to go up and make sure they could accommodate. We had 30, 40 people at that point. And they had had a private event earlier, and they just decided to close after the private event. So everything was shutting down. And as we're headed out, the Harry Carey's has a location on Navy Pier, and Billy Go Tavern has a location on Navy Pier. Both of them were supposed to close at 8. But Billy Goat stayed open till midnight. We don't know why. <laughs> they stayed open till midnight, so a handful of us stuck around oh, and, and cool. you know hung out um, until the the pier officially closes at midnight. So we we had to leave at that point. But shut the place down. So, but your question was, there's a beer garden. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. <laughs> you know, they stayed open, right? Who doesn't yeah. love architects? They stayed open for architects. This city loves architecture. Yeah. This city loves architects. So that's why. <laughs> so it was an adventure. We had an adventure last night. That's awesome. Yeah. So, Bill, you said you were ahead of excuse, the public. Say that again. It's AIA New Jersey Public Awareness Committee. I'm the co-chairman. And what I do is value membership, get the word out to the public about what architects do. And we also engage with the press when there are questions that come up where they need an expert opinion from architects. I also actively search out journalists uh, through their email addresses because now every, a lot, so much of it is online, but not a lot of it's in print. And I've been doing this since it was in print and certain, you know, but uh, you, uh, you know, when something happens, we'll contact a journalist and say, listen, we know you must be writing a story about this fire or this whatever it is that they're writing about, and we'll offer our expertise to that journalist. And we have been uh, fairly successful at getting our uh, members quoted in uh, articles in social media and in print. Very nice. So this is a question for both of you then, because I feel like you are, like you said, your, your podcast is about educating the public, right? Yep. Um, about the between builder versus buyer that's literally the name and then you're obviously trying to help educate the public right the two former get the two guests we had on just before you guys that was one of that was the topic we were talking about it's like how do we how do how, how do architects who have largely failed to educate the public um, when they're receptive to it about like, what architects do how they can make your life easier how they make it better like what kind of roadblocks do you, both of you see what do you, you think you know what could we be doing better okay first of all Stuff like this that you're doing right here, things are getting a lot better. There's a lot better communication. The public uh, understands now much better what we do. And there's a lot more resources for them to find out what we do. If they think they might need an architect, it's easier for them to get information. But the way you reach the public is you have to demonstrate the value that architects bring. And value is you know one of those words where you know you can put kind of any uh, you know meaning onto it. But it's we have to demonstrate it's not just about the aesthetics, it's not just about the function. It's also about the economics, how the architect fits into the economic equation in the construction process. So that has been a big focus of what AI New Jersey and our public awareness uh, committee have been uh, focused on: demonstrating clearly explainable value to the public. And we see it as a, a value of membership kind of a thing to, to benefit our members. Um, but it's, it's really about educating the public about what we do. Uh, that's how I see it. How do you yeah. try to do it through your podcast? Um, oh, going back to your first question about roadblocks, like never in human history have there been less roadblocks yeah. to getting information out. Like yeah. anybody listening right now, you can start a podcast this afternoon. You can start a TikTok channel this afternoon. Instagram account, Facebook page, like Facebook group. You could reach people. If you want to say TikTok video with three to five things of why architects increase value on your job, somebody's going to do that and get thousands of views. You know, like, I don't, I don't think there's a ton of barriers there to getting information out now. We just need people that aren't, aren't afraid to do it. Like, I'm naturally a, a learn-by-doer type of person, and I love that. And I think what I found is, like, yeah, it's, it's not that scary. You know, it's a little nerve-wracking to be on a, a live show or a podcast, and then you get over it. You do it a couple times, and and it's fine. And 
to have your face in front of a camera, somebody's gonna say something weird. I got on TikTok, somebody thought I had a speech impediment because I was pausing too much. I don't know. But you know, that stuff happens and you get over it. And I I think to just go for it is yeah, what I what I can say. I mean you guys are that way too with yeah, 100%. I mean, there was a, a I couldn't find it. There's a there's a playlist I put on our YouTube channel that is uh, why you should, like it's something like uh, how to work with an architect. And then there was three additional videos that I put up that now we send to like our, our newest clients or anybody who can just view them because they're public on YouTube and that's how how to read floor plans, how to read sections, how to read elevations, how to read architectural plans. Just very simple. I'm trying to like my 12-year-old could read, look at the video and, and kind of understand that whole process. It doesn't mean they know all the ex, all the stuff that we know internally that makes us the licensed professionals. Um, but that sort of approach, I, I really like that kind of stuff. I, I think, you know, what, what you're talking about, Adam, and also what you're talking about, Bill, but lo- looking at the available, let's stick with social media because it, it's social media and it's so consumable and so available um, I'm actually a little bit encouraged when I open up TikTok now and I know you're not a a TikTok fan but um, I open up TikTok now and about once a week I see a new architect on TikTok and take, take the architecture piece out of it the most successful people on that very consumable uh, media type social media, what they're doing is, and, and it changes all the time, right? Now you can do a three minute TikTok where you used to be able to do 30 or 15 seconds or whatever, but but it's you take one idea and you clearly delineate, and you don't use the word delineate, <laughs> you, clear, <Yeah. laughs> you clearly explain one idea in a minute or three minutes or whatever it is, and there it is, and there's a piece of content. And if you're, if the audience that you're trying to reach is homeowners or builders or journalists or you know whatever, there's lots of different strategies there. If we can create simple, concise, bite-sized, consumable content, number one, there's a lot less pressure yeah. to get one idea across in one minute or three minutes or whatever it is than to go, oh my gosh, I'm going to jam my whole thesis into this 90-second video. That, that's not happening. No, that's yeah. what your website is for. Mm-hmm. Jam your thesis there. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> and that was hard to do at first. When I first started TikTok, a minute is really constraining. And I, yeah. I'm like, okay, I got this idea. I need to say this and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, that was way over a minute. Try again. That was way over a minute. Try again. And it really helps you think through clearly when Does, you have that cap. When, when Twitter first came out, at 140 characters. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what it is about my brain, but Twitter was my first social media love because I loved, okay, how, the challenge, I guess it was a challenge probably. The challenge is getting an idea across in 140 characters. Yeah. And so, and I think it trains your brain, right? To, and and, and I, I have mixed feelings about, you know, now Twitter's 280 and, and TikTok is, is three minutes and Instagram is, all kinds of things now. Um, there's some loss of purity there, but also a little bit of loss of challenge. Because so I think if you give somebody more and more time, they're going to convolute it more and more. They're going to try to put more. Well, okay, I can cover this and this. No, stop. Don't don't do that. Just one idea. 
And if it takes you 15 seconds, awesome. If it takes you a minute or three minutes, awesome. But one idea, yeah. make it consumable. And I think there's a lot of opportunity out there. I love Twitter. I know I you do. I absolutely love spot. Twitter. That's yeah. it. The nice thing, and all these platforms that we're on, and we should be on all of them, uh, they all have a different kind of a purpose. And the one thing I like about Twitter is because it forces you into a, a shorter message, uh, you can be a little more edgy, you can be a little more artsy, and still reach your audience, whether it's other architects or whether it's the public, you're trying to explain to the public what you're doing. Facebook is a little bit less that way. You don't want to be too edgy on Facebook, you know. And uh, Instagram is great too, but Instagram and Facebook are, you know, they're both owned by Meta now, so it's Connected. Well, I think you know you. You got to be authentic, right? What's what's yeah. Bill's personality? What's Jeff's yeah. personality? What's Adam's personality? And then who are you trying to reach? You know, you align those types of things, and you know, I, I really appreciate your TikToks, Adam, because it's you know, it, at least to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it is kind of aimed at the homeowner, the future homeowner, yeah. or someone that wants to build a and. and whether they hire you or, or anybody to design the home, that's probably secondary, but it's that education platform for that particular audience. Right, and I think if you think like that, like don't think about leads, don't think about yeah, conversion, yeah. Um, how can I help somebody today? And if your post is, all right, this post is gonna help somebody with something, you'll get leads. Yeah. <laughs> because people are like, obviously that's the, that's the game, but um, yeah, if you could just keep feeding them. Yeah. I, that, that's exactly it. Yeah, I, I presented a workshop on Wednesday, and it was um, developing a product, a project pipeline versus fostering a fan base. Kind of yeah. an exploration of business development. Of course, I'm pushing towards the fan base side. And the very first thing that you've got to talk about in that context is when when you start to build a community or think about building a fan base, it's not about leads. Right. It's about supporting a group of people, homeowners, journalists, whoever the group of people is. It's about them. It's got to. It's got to be about them first. Yeah. Before about you, and that's that's an important realization. And one thing I missed that I think a lot of people miss, and I've just recently started to do it, is social media is called social media because they want you to be social. So they exactly are right. begging you to interact with your audience, and um, I. Like starting out, I, I wanted people with bigger accounts to notice me and interact with me, and I, I think that's there's part of human nature to like be recognized. I was like, okay, just stop that and interact with your audience. People are asking you questions, answer those questions, comment back, video answers, like anything you can do to really foster that. And you, it's like this ball that just keeps rolling by itself. You know, once it's going, it's it's off. And yeah, I've seen a lot of fruit from that, and it's been. Yeah, really safe. Well, when, when you get into the, you know, sort of the, in a way, the technology behind it, what, what you just said is incredibly important because, yes, it's called social media. Yes, it's about being social, but every algorithm or AI, whatever is driving the social media that you love, is based on engagement. Yeah. Always has been, always will be. And so if you're not engaging, and then... Each platform has different versions. Of that is it a is it a like? Is it a share? Is it you know? There's all those things. Engagement drives everything, and and what you're saying will always 
be the fundamental key to social media. Yeah. No matter what, what platform comes out next month, that's going to drive that platform. Yeah. I'll put money on it right now. Yeah. 100%. But, what, hey, Demetrius, you want to take us out? Yeah. Looks like we're on the three o'clock here, and former president's going to speak. And... Oh man, you just threw it on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for everybody, everyone for joining, uh, listening in to this conversation, this marathon conversation. Uh, Adam, I didn't get to say hi, but <laughs> hello. Uh, thank you. Um, can you guys uh, give a quick shout out to however would be best for people to follow along with you? Um, Adam, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Adam Steiner. Follow me at, on TikTok or Instagram at Burnham Design Co. or the podcast Builder vs. Fire. Uh, speaking on behalf of Al Gore and Lance Psycho, you can find us on Inside the Firm podcast. Uh, we're on Instagram, Facebook. Um, and then if you want to follow along my fish, fishing adventures, go to my YouTube channel, Fishing with Lance, where I bring you up to the Rocky Mountains. I catch beautiful fish and uh, sometimes eat them on camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard to follow. Uh, Jeff Eccles, host of Context and Clarity, Build Your Brand podcast. I would love for you as a small firm architect to go just start at the Entre Architect Community Facebook group and understand that beyond that, there's a community there. There's an Entre Architect Academy. But we uh, every weekday afternoon, we host a show called Context and Clarity, where we cover the things that matter most to the success of small firm architects live every weekday afternoon. All right. William J. Martin, WJM Architect. You can find me across many social media platforms as at W-J-M-A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-T. Uh, you can Google my name. That'll get you there. Uh, you can Google AI New Jersey, AI New Jersey Public Awareness, and that will uh, get you to uh, the uh, uh, actions that AI New Jersey is doing to, to raise public awareness for architects. Very hashtag flat architect. Yes. <laughs> hashtag flat architect. <laughs> All right. And then just quick shout out for Mark, Mark R. LePage, uh, entrearchitect.com. Uh, my name, Demetrius Lynch, spacespodcast.com. And check us out, uh, cablemedia.com. And then obviously, thank you so much to RCAT for hosting us again for this RCAST uh, number four, I believe. Uh, so thankful for having them uh, support us. Make sure to check them out, RCAT.com. Their podcast, their original podcast, Detailed with the host Sharice. Thank you to all of our guests that joined us today. Have a great uh, rest of the convention. And if you're listening to this at home, great rest of your day. Thanks. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it, share, write a review. I'd love it. And share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT and FreshBooks for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at 
entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there, entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entre Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And I hope you're going to join us in Austin, November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entre Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entre Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.